KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this holiday weekend. Rob Marinko, how are you today? Doing great. Good to see you. Well, it's great well, to it's see been a while. you. It's always great to see you and to work with you, Rob. And uh, gosh, we got Randy Wang on sports here and uh, Bill Thomas on traffic. It's going to be a great day. I hope everybody's having a, a wonderful holiday weekend. Yeah, Russia is kind of in the news. I guess I'm still, though, Rob Marinko, looking for the smoking gun, uh, this back channel business. It sounds kind of weird and sinister. And I, I kind of had the impression, well, maybe, you know, it's a felony. Maybe it's treason. Maybe Jared Kushner will be executed soon. But apparently, uh, let's assume there was a back channel. Again, this is, is not prior to the election. It's in December. And Kushner's reaching out to the Ruskies. And he's saying, hey, what if we used your diplomatic uh, facilities and uh, we could uh, chat about these important issues of mutual interest? Even if that happened, do we know that that actually would have been illegal? No, we don't know that. And I'm wondering if it could be more serious, though, if maybe he had like a separate server set up, I don't know, in his bathroom or something, you know, to keep Nobody all would be stupid well, enough true. to do that. That's true. No, that's that, that would not happen. But mm. yeah. I don't understand what the story is with the back channels. Don't we have back channels with lots of different countries? I think we do. I think the idea is, gee... He wasn't part of the government because, again, it was December before the inauguration. But, you know, I, it, Kushner doesn't look happy about this. He's not. I think there's probably some concern because Flynn had his, his tentacles into so many areas, you know, taking money and talking to Russians. I, but it's the same old deal. I mean, the Republicans still say, look, you've been looking about into this for a year. Where is the smoking gun? Where is the fire beneath the smoke? So it's it's going to be a big story in the next few weeks, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, you've got Comey. Uh, he's he's going to be testifying. you got the special counsel, Mueller. you got the Oversight Committee in Congress, the Senate Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee. So people are all over the story. Another story uh, folks are all over, Rob Marinko, is uh, O.J. Simpson. He may be sprung from prison. How about that? Yeah, Next month, there's going to be a hearing set. Um, uh, they'll pick a date for a, for a July hearing. And in July, the Nevada Parole Board is going to decide whether O.J. Simpson uh, gets out on October 1 or not. It'd be kind of spooky to see him walking around, you know, Brentwood, you know, walking down the fairways. Uh, I don't know if they're going to take him back at Riviera. Very, Probably not. No, very, very Maybe unlikely. they can pick him up in a Bronco. <laughs> And uh, the Bill Cosby trial, of course, uh, coming up. Uh, looks like they've actually picked their jury. Uh, they've got all, all 12 of the jurors. I think they may still be working on the alternates. Uh, June 5, the balloon lifts. Uh, they're in, in Pennsylvania. They're going to be putting putting Cosby on balloon trial. Lifts, the bill drops. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, well, yeah, that was tacky. Yeah, no, that's okay. Was... So, some people would say it's too soon, but, mm. but I'm not sure. Hey, if they can make a bar with the pill Cosby, Rob can make a pill joke. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty clever. I, I mean, I, the, the bar... I think uh, shut it down quickly, but it was mission accomplished. Everybody in the world was well, talking about it. Some people were offended of the making light of date rape. Yeah, exactly. And their answer was, well, we're shining a light on the importance of uh, being aware of the, sure. the 
sure yeah. you are. Yeah. Plus, it's all a PSA. Yeah, I, I think that they were interested in profits as well. But Cosby, you know, I got to do a little predicting. I think the prosecution could have its work cut out for them because when the judge said, no, I'm not going to let the dozen women who all told basically the same story testify, yeah, maybe the jurors secretly know what's going on. But they're not going to hear from these other women. And instead, they're going to hear from one separate accuser. But fundamentally, the case is going to be about this woman, Andrea Constant. And what she's going to have to explain when she testifies is why it is several months after he allegedly sexually assaulted her, she and her parents went to see him at a concert and they wanted to visit him before the, the concert. They had a gift, a little T-shirt gift for him. Why would a person act that way toward a guy who had committed sexual assault? It, it doesn't, there's no explanation except experts do say sometimes it takes time for people to process what's happened to them. And that's her story. Mm -hmm. It took her a year or so to decide, you know, talking with her mom and so on. But that sounds a little flaky. No, and are you going to send Cosby to prison because of that flaky explanation? Yeah. And some may claim it's Stockholm Syndrome, that there's a trauma involved, and the trauma led to her being sympathetic to her attacker and so forth. But I agree with you, Royal. I think for the prosecution, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Yeah, it's it's going to be a, it's going to be a rough one. Uh, but uh, that's coming up this summer. Uh, big news on the Huma Abedin uh, front. Finally, can you imagine finally divorcing Anthony Weiner after all that? What is she waiting for? Oh, exactly. I mean, who, who, else, who else's life can he ruin? Uh, Hillary, he torpedoed Hillary's chances for the White House. My career is in the dumper. Well, I guess I'll divorce him now. I mean, I, I don't think Uma's uh, real good at timing. That was uh, not <laughs> not a real good decision. Well, the fact that she stayed the first time showed that she is bad with Jeff. And the second time. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. Wow. So later in the show, we're going to uh, hear from Pat Buchanan. I'm really excited about this because he's written a new book, uh, Nixon's White House wars all about being a right on the inside uh, during the whole Watergate situation. I would think he'll have some insights that might apply to uh, to our our current situation with, with Trump. I mean, some you know, people are still predicting, you know, impeachment. Who knows how how long uh, Trump will be around? But uh, we'll, you know, even that you know that Hillary commencement address last Friday that CNN covered wall to wall. Wellesley, she's right. making all these comparisons to Trump and Nixon and impeachment. Nixon wasn't impeached. Her husband was. That's right. That's right. Uh, Nixon beat him to the punch. He, he resigned first. Uh, yeah, you know, she sounded like a candidate. Uh, can you? Maybe we are going to have her to, to kick around uh, uh, in the future. Oh God, that's uh, that's a nice, nice thought. <laughs> it, it'd be pretty amazing. Well, you know, the yeah. grooming Chelsea. They they're going to run her for Congress. Mm -hmm. They're in the Chappaqua area where uh, the Democratic Party's new headline is "We're out of ideas." Yeah. <laughs> It's. I, I think Elizabeth Warren probably would have a little a problem. She's. She's going to say it's. It's my turn. All right. It's five forty three. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, we're going to check in with our friend uh, Jim Roop, who's uh, going to give us the lowdown on the death of superstar Greg Allman. So stay with us. And let's check in now with Bill Thomas. Bill, how are the roads looking? Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Memorial Day to you all. 
We got this uh, fire, uh, Rob Marenko. Folks uh, need to be concerned about. I guess uh, over 150 firefighters are battling this 55-acre brush fire above Brentwood. So I guess we'll get updates uh, through the morning about the exact status. Uh, yeah, I understand it's almost out, and they've got pretty good control over it. So until it's over, the weed whacker fire. Yeah, yeah. The guy trying to clear brush to prevent brush fires. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> started and, the fire. That's that's for real. Then that, yeah. that is actually what triggered that's this. What happened. You know, he's got to do it, and apparently the weed whacker hits a rock and a spark and boom there you go mm -hmm. yeah no good deed goes unpunished hey we are delighted to welcome our friend uh, jim roop jim uh, uh good to talk to you again and of course sad news sad story the uh, death of greg allman at uh, at age 69 and uh, i know you've been covering this so uh, what's your take on it yeah, well, sad, number one. I mean, you think back at the late 60s, early 70s, and that group of southern rock groups, the Eagles, 38 Special, Blackfoot, um, ZZ Top, the Marshall Tucker Band, Molly Hatchett, uh, for heaven's sakes, Leonard Skinner, Kenko, in my opinion, the number one uh, southern rock band, and then probably the Allman Brothers, number two on my list anyway. But uh, it's sad in that passing. That band has faced tragedy since its start. And, but it has always produced great quality music. And, um, you know, I had a chance to listen back to some of the stuff that I had uh, after Greg Allman passed. And it's like, man, I, are we ever going to find the, the likes of these kinds of musicians again? Because, you know, I often thought there's got to be a finite combination of notes to put together uh, to where we won't have new music anymore. And maybe that's why rap music is so popular now, because we're running out of those combinations of notes. Uh, but you take a listen back to the Allman Brothers, and every, they have their sound, but no two songs are the same. Yeah, they were really true originals. But, boy, you, you allude to the troubled life. I mean, how do you find time to, to write music and perform when you're... Uh, here's the list. Six failed marriages, one to share, of course. Uh, huge legal disputes, publicized battles with drugs, alcohol, health problems, hepatitis, I mean, it's, it's like Liz Taylor meets Michael Jackson. I mean, how do you do your job with this kind of life going on? Well, you know, he, he said at one point, and I forget the interview, but you bring up an interesting point because he, he said when they started out, that was kind of the thing back then. Right. Drugs, alcohol, and music, they knew no other way. No one knew any other way, and that's just the way of the world for them at that point. So it became, uh, it just... That's just how they did it, and, and you're right. I mean, all the stuff that was going on, they still were able to get to get on stage and get albums out. You know, it's absolutely amazing. So, you know, I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to respond to that other than he just said at one point. That's all we knew. What a backstory he had here. And this, of course, you get reminded of of the career when somebody passes. In 1960, he and his brother were teenagers. They went to a show at the Nashville Auditorium. Jackie Wilson, Otis Redding, B.B. King, Patti LaBelle. And they just sat there mesmerized. And he, he said, you know, nothing on his body moved during the whole concert. He, you know, he just knew that this is, this is what he was going to do with his life. And then, I mean, now here's a fun fact. I didn't know about this one. The Vietnam War heats up, okay, in the 60s. Greg Allman decides to avoid the draft by shooting himself in the foot, literally. Another reason he was better suited to sit at a keyboard than roam the stage with a guitar. Did, did you know that interesting factoid about Greg Allman? That's first I heard of that one, Royal. But then again, I can always leave it to you to bring the bring the unknown to the world. <laughs> so I appreciate that. But that you know it doesn't doesn't surprise me, I guess. But uh, but I, I've never heard that one though. 
He, uh, of course, you know, back and forth with the marriages and the career. And uh, according to the reports here, so they get back together in the early 80s. But Greg Gallman said it was a hollow experience. He said the money was still there and the fans, but that didn't impress me. Now, that's odd to me because I think I'd be okay with Probably the money fans? and the fans. Yeah. That'd be a good start. Sure. You know, I could build on that. Uh -huh. If there was nothing else, I could probably live with that. But, I mean, that, that's kind of strange that uh, they had an opportunity to, to actually recreate the glory years, and apparently that, that wasn't enough for him. No, but he was working on an album, uh, you know, that uh, we're not sure when it's going to be released now, obviously, but he was just listening to tracks from that new album he's got coming out. Uh, just, the, I think, the night or the day before he died, uh, so we're still going to get some Greg Allman music at, at some point, but uh, not really sure when. But you're right. He, you know, they tried many different um, makeups of the Allman Brothers band. But, you know, he never really got over his brother's death in 71. And then, and then Barry Oakley, their bass player, uh, died just a year later, 72. Same a motorcycle accident, just the same as his brother. So he never really got over that. And that's what, another reason why he got so deep into drugs and alcohol. But he never could get that same feeling together that they had in, you know, 69, 70, 71 uh, before uh, his brother died. But, you know, I mean, I, well, I'm looking forward to hear what is on this this latest concoction of his as it's released. Well, huge entertainer. And uh, Jim Roop, uh, final thoughts switching over to OJ, because I know you were there in Vegas covering the OJ robbery. Uh, so it looks like uh, very soon he's going to have a hearing before the Nevada Parole Board. You want to go out on a limb and uh, predict uh, whether this guy's uh, going to get sprung? They say he's got a pretty low uh, score. They give you points for your age and your behavior in prison and so on. A lot of people are betting that we're going to see OJ walk in the streets in October. He didn't stab anybody in prison either. So that's true. That's true. Excellent behavior. I think so. As you remember, there was some criticism by the sentence he received, what, 30 years for, uh, for for that sentence in the first place by, I forgot her name now, the judge. Glass, there. Judge Glass, right. Judge Glass, oh, yeah, my gosh. Boy, she kind of read him the riot act a few times during that. But well, he I, did I, kill I, two people, Jim, I mean. That's true. But, but you know, again, it was that case. As you know, you got to, you know. So it was, I believe, I believe he'll be sprung. I believe he'll get out of jail. I, I really do. Well, uh, okay, we're going to, we're just going to put this in the time capsule because I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say that the Nevada Parole Board is going to say, I don't, we don't care about his score. Not everybody with a low score gets out. And a double killer should put in a couple of more years. So we're just going to play this tape back in about six months and see who's right. Okay, Jim? All right. Well, I'm going to be at that hearing, so. <laughs> All right. It's a deal. All right. Thank you, Jim Roop. 5.54 The Time. Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, the world's most frightening mannequin. You don't want to miss that. Is McIntyre in the morning? With Doug McIntyre. Six oh six, the time. Talk Radio seven ninety KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Memorial Day. Hope you have a fabulous holiday weekend. We got a fabulous show the rest of the way as well. We got Pat Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. He's going to be coming up. Uh, we're going to hear all about the sex slump issue with Dr. Daniela Schreier. She's a psychologist and author of A Crash Course in Love and Life. 
But let's start with a crash course in the whole uh, Bill Cosby situation. It's coming uh, right around the corner. Uh, you know, Rob Marenko, they've got the jury picked uh, there in Philadelphia. Uh, what they did was apparently Cosby's lawyers were really worried that the local jury pool there would be biased against him. Like everybody in Philadelphia is basically in the same situation. But they wanted to move the trial. And the judge said, I'm not going to move the trial, but I'm going to move over to the west end of the state to Pittsburgh to pick the panel. So they literally bust themselves to West Philadelphia, West Pennsylvania, picked a jury from a totally different county. And now those folks are schlepping back and they're going to be sequestered, just like the O.J. Simpson murder jury. They're going to be in a fancy hotel. But what do they say? Western Pennsylvanians have never heard of Bill Cosby? Exactly. It makes no sense at all. Oh, or this scandal that's been going on for five years mm -hmm. now? Yeah. So anyway, that's what they did. They've got the jury selected. And June 5 is, is when the trial starts. So the, the, the big drama in the lead up was you know, who's going to be allowed to testify. Over 40 women have accused Cosby of sexual assault in kind of pretty much the same way in terms of him using quaaludes and, and them waking up and there he is with his robe and so on. But the judge said, no, that, that would be too much. He is going to allow one woman in addition to the primary accuser. The, the primary woman is Andrea Constant. So there's going to be one woman in addition to that. So instead of you know, a dozen or, or 40. So what Constant claims is that at his home, in 2004, she drugged. She was drugged, and he sexually assaulted her. Uh, the uh, a lot of the other women never called the police, or when they thought about doing it, they found that the statute of limitations uh, had expired. Uh, the defense is going to ask, "How is it you were at the house when you uh, uh, admit or claim that he had made earlier sexual advances on two separate occasions in a similar deal where you're there with him at his house for kind of an intimate dinner. Uh, why is it you would go back? Well, the one other prosecution witness, in addition to Andrea Constant, is a woman who's known as Casey, and she is so going to support Andrea's story. Uh, Casey worked for Cosby's agent in Los Angeles, and she's going to say, She's going to tell this jury Cosby drugged her and assaulted her back in 1996. Uh, the prosecution did want a dozen more women to testify, but the judge said, no, I'm only going to allow one. So the, the background of Constant is she was a, a star high school basketball player. Uh, ball player. Uh, she goes to the University of Arizona on a scholarship, and uh, then she becomes director of operations for Temple University's women's basketball team. And, of course, that's where she meets Cosby because he's a famous alum of, of Temple. And so he starts to be kind of a mentor to her. They become friends. Uh, they exchange gifts. She makes several visits to his house, sometimes for dinner parties. Uh, she travels to New York to see a jazz concert where he appears. And she tells investigators, well, we were friendly, but we were not involved in any romantic relationships. She said she was gay, but she never discussed that with Bill Cosby. But she admits, and this is something the defense is really going to hammer on, she admits that he made passes at her twice during meetings at his home, and one of those times he started to unbutton her pants, and so she brushes him off. So she goes through these experiences, and yet she still goes back to his home a third time for the night of the alleged assault. So according to her, she drives to the mansion. It's just before 9 o'clock. She was all anxious about her career. He'd invited her over to talk things through. She tells the police she was tense. He goes upstairs uh, and comes back with three blue pills after she had told him she's, she's very tense. He says they're an herbal remedy. 
for, for stress. Later on, he tells the cops it was Benadryl. She swallows the pills, and then she says her vision goes blurry. She can't talk. He helps her to the sofa where she says she was sexually assaulted. She says, I was unable to move my body. I was pretty much frozen. 4 a.m., she wakes up. He's wearing his robe. And the defense, of course, is going to make a big deal out of the fact that, all right, this happened in March 2004. In August 2004, so we're talking five months after this sexual assault, she and her parents travel to see Cosby perform at a resort north of Toronto. The family showed up early so that they could see him, visit him, but they couldn't connect with him before the performance. So they watch the show and they leave a gift behind for him that they brought for him, a T-shirt. So That's tough. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rob Marinko, you're on the jury. Are, are you uh, going to be a little skeptical of her A story? little bit. I mean, first of all, you've got that original instance where he is unbuttoning her pants. She's admitted to that. Right. Okay, and I, again, I understand it's a powerful man, and he's a celebrity and everything else, but how much do you tolerate? And then she's semi-conscious, and he wears his robe after he drugs her, and I don't know if, whether she saw his uh, Fat Albert or not, but I mean, it's you know, he's got the robe on, and he's... I, I just don't think you can come back and say, I'm shocked at what happened, and I didn't kind of put myself in that position. So here's the kind of story that she's going to be presenting to the jury. Uh, her dad uh, w was a massage therapist, and, and so she was studying to do this. And he has told a newspaper that her massage training, mm. with its focus on trust and boundaries and on the line between helping touch on the one hand and sexual contact on the other, that helped trigger his daughter to revisit in her mind the whole Cosby incident. She started to have bad dreams about it. Her mother said she heard her daughter screaming at night. Uh, and uh, at least twice during this year after it happened, she calls Cosby to confront him, but he hangs up on her. So she's going to be telling the jury that, you know, this, this incident, it was just was sort of welling up back in her mind. And, of course, you know, the law provides for recovered memories. We've got the statute of limitations in California. And it says if, you, if something happened to you 30 years ago, so it's way outside the statute of limitations, if you can prove with a psychologist's help, that you repress the memory and within the last three years recovered it, then you've got three years to go to court and go to the cops and sue and so on. So she's going to be talking about that kind of approach. Uh, the detectives, of course, interviewed Cosby, uh, the district attorney found the evidence was insufficient. And, of course, we know from the stories from months ago that, according to Cosby, there was a deal with the DA where the DA said, look, you agree to go ahead and not take the fifth and testify in a deposition in her civil suit against you, Andrea Constant's civil suit. This is a decade ago. And then I won't prosecute you. Okay, all right, that's the deal. So that's when Cosby gives his deposition testimony. And in the deposition, he says, well, uh, yeah, I would uh, use quaaludes uh, with the women I hope to have sex with. Uh, but, you know, there was no rape and no assault involved. It was just kind of like martinis in the 50s and 60s to get relaxed people and kind of yeah. soften them up. Help me understand this, uh, Royal. I recall that that deposition in the civil suit was sealed, was it not? It was it just was. supposed to use, be used for the civil suit. And then later on, we get to hear about the contents of it. Exactly right. And here's what happened. A decade goes by in 2015 detectives interview Andrea Constand again because the, the statute of limitations to charge Cosby with a crime is about to expire in a matter of months. 
and a bunch of other women are coming forward because, you know, there was a comedian, the young black comedian that was calling Mm -hmm. Cosby a rapist. So this is all happening. And at that point, the Associated Press goes to court and they say, hey, you know, we heard about this deposition of Bill Cosby from a decade ago. Uh, We'd like it unsealed. Normally, these depots, they remain secret. Uh, pursuant to an agreement by both sides, and they they are supposed to stay secret. But you know what the judge did? The judge said, you know what? I'm going to unseal that deposition in spite of the fact that Andrea and Bill agreed it will remain secret forever. And the reason I'm unsealing it is because of what the judge called a stark contrast between Bill Cosby, the public moralist, and Bill Cosby, the subject of serious allegations concerning criminal conduct. Therefore... His deposition testimony is of significant public interest. That's why the judge unsealed it. And but for that, I don't think this the whole thing would have gone anywhere because the smoking gun was in the deposition where Cosby said, yeah, I guess I did, you know, use quaaludes with women that uh, I wanted to have sex with. So what, what kind of balancing act will this be, Royal, in your experience in courtrooms, the defense has to go after this woman, Andrew Constant, to a degree, do, do they not? Yeah, they have to actually blast without, away at her without going so far yeah. that the jury will feel sorry for her. So, yeah, I think that's the bottom line is that they have to they have to walk the line. Um, it's going to be a fascinating trial. No cameras, though. They don't mm-hmm. believe in cameras in the courtroom. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, it's a, we, we definitely uh, would be nice to see our justice system at work. But what are you going to do? All right. The time, 616, Talk Radio 790 KABC. We're going to shift gears from a feel bad story to a feel-good story because uh, you folks may have heard about this uh, this young fellow uh, who's, uh, who appeared in his high school yearbook right next to a picture of his service dog. So uh, let's check in with A.J. Schalk. He's a student at uh, Stafford High School in Falmouth, Virginia. Uh, A.J., welcome to KBC. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for this, guys. Oh, you were quite welcome. Uh, what, what a terrific uh, story that the, really the whole world uh, heard about. Uh, it, it's uh, it, tell me, was it your idea to have your dog's picture in in the yearbook, or somebody else, did somebody else come up with it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a joint idea between me and a lot of my friends that were in yearbook, and just a lot of my friends in general. Just because uh, when he started coming to school with me halfway through my sophomore year, we had already missed yearbook pictures by then. And ever since then, it's kind of been talked about getting him into the yearbook, and so we made it happen this year. So now he's a service dog, and yeah. uh, tell the story because he's a bit of a lifesaver. Is that right? Yeah. So Alpha is a service dog for me. I'm type one diabetic, and his job is to alert to my blood sugar through smell twenty to forty minutes sooner than I know anything's wrong. And that's been life saving before. I mean, he's woken me up in the middle of the night and started barking when I've had an extremely low blood sugar. And woken up my family and I, and then, you know, we go and fix the blood sugar. But if he hadn't woken me up, I may not be here right now. So this has sounded like magic stuff to me. I mean, over the years, I've heard, you know, dogs can somehow sense if somebody has cancer. They actually bring dogs into hospitals. Uh, dogs and other animals supposedly can figure out if an earthquake is uh, is uh, bubbling beneath you. Some uh, people, dogs apparently can detect seizures before they happen. Have you have you heard of that? I mean, is this stuff for real? I mean, have you talked to scientists who, who tell you absolutely, yeah, they can somehow sense uh, your blood sugar level? just because of their super nose? Well, and yeah, that's what's great about alphas. It's not, it's not sensing and it's not magic. It's all through smell. 
And dogs just have such a keen sense of smell. They can smell one part per trillion, which is the equivalent of a teaspoon of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I mean, that's that's how good his sense of smell is, and that's what allows him to be able to smell my blood sugar. Oh, what so it's not even Yeah, it's not even sense or anything like that. It's not like he's got some inner dog sense or anything like yeah. that. It's, all, it's just all through smell. Yeah, I've got a couple of dogs, and, and they're terrific, and I love them, but all they do is, uh, you know, sniff each other's butts. <laughs> Yeah, oh, and by the way, the uh, AJ's uh, yearbook uh, photo is on the uh, KABC webpage. So here's my question, and I, AJ, I don't know if you're you're really a, a super dog expert here, but if a dog's uh, a sense of smell is so incredibly, you know, super super canine, how is it when they come across something like six inches away, a giant pile of you know rancid, uh, d- d- rabid cheese? How is it their head doesn't explode? I mean, if you can, <laughs> if you can figure out one in a trillion, how, and you, but you've got something that's overwhelming and six inches away, why wouldn't that overwhelm your senses? Oh, Rob Marinko knows everything. Rob, what's the answer to that scientific I have question? No clue. Well, if you could research it, maybe by the end of the show and yeah, get some I'll answer. Get, I'll get back to you on that. Okay, mm. we're talking with. <laughs> We're talking with A.J. Shawks, student at Stafford High School in Falmouth, Virginia, who uh, is a uh, type 1 diabetic, and his uh, service dog is right next to him uh, in the yearbook. As they say, kbc.com website has it. So, A.J., did you take some kidding uh, from your uh, pals at school about your service dog being uh, in the yearbook with you? Oh, I mean, everyone absolutely loves the fact that he's in the, in the yearbook. I mean, it's it's been fantastic just because everyone in school knows who he is and has seen him for the past year and a half and so when we went and put him in the yearbook and we wanted to I mean everyone just teachers students alike felt it was right because he's been around for so long I mean he'd become such a huge part of the school environment everyone loved the idea of having him in there so I mean it's it's just been good now a few years ago as a prank um the yearbook staff saw I think it was in Illinois um, put a picture of a monkey instead of a student's <laughs> picture. And he, the, the student and his family, they were not amused. Didn't go over well. I, a litigation ensued. So I, I take it your situation, AJ, feels a lot different from that. Oh, definitely, because Alpha did not take the place of another student. Alpha is his right. own student. He, he even has his own student ID. So he's he does have his own student <laughs> lifestyle. Hey, AJ, I'm curious about this. Will Alpha react to another person? Let's say there's another diabetic on campus and that person is in uh, desperate need. Will Alpha react to that, or is it just you he's trained to react to? Alpha is trained to react to me, but he can smell anybody. So there have been times where I've checked my blood sugar and I'm okay, but he's still upset, and I've gone back and checked, and so if we're out in public or we're in an area where we think there could be another diabetic, uh-huh. and I mean, if we know the person who's around, we might be like, hey, you should check your blood sugar. Alpha's just going crazy. But if not, I mean, we just, all right, Alpha, it's going to be all right. AJ's fine. There's obviously someone else who is having a blood sugar issue. But, I mean, he, he can smell everybody. I mean, he's even alerted to own family members who just, they, they haven't eaten in, in a while. Like, they ate early breakfast or eating a late lunch, and their blood sugar was low to Alpha. And he's alerted towards them, and they're not even diabetic. That is Fascinating. Now, AJ, uh, I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories in the news about service animals, and some people you know, like to make fun of them. Uh, there were news reports about a lady who insisted on flying with her service monkey, but the service monkey had to have a service parrot. So, you know, <laughs> do, do, do you think that perhaps things could get out of hand when it comes to service uh, animals, or are you pretty much sympathetic down the line? 
No, there definitely are stories of people who fake service animals and they just bring their pets on to, they bring their pets out in public with, with or without a vest because the law only requires that the service animals on leash. So, I mean, people don't even have to have a vest for their dog and it's against the law to ask really what service the dog provides. And that just, it allows people that can go out there and they can just take their pet and walk them around and wherever. And so that has caused people to then question us in public, be like, is this, we can't have pets in here. And we're like, no, 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 this is actually a service dog. And I mean, it, it ends up being fine just because, again, my family and I were very, look, this is a service dog. This is what he does. We don't mind telling people. But there are definitely people out there who do, do try and just abuse that privilege and take out their pets or something like that. All right, A.J. Shonk, Stafford High School in Falmouth, Virginia. Thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. Uh, best of luck to you for the summer. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. The time is 623. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, a dog held hostage by an airline. But right now, Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the roads? 648 to time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Memorial Day to you all. So I didn't think Rob Marenko could get any worse for the airlines, but it has now. They're kidnapping puppies. Oh, no. Yes. A Minnesota woman, Mary Nguyen, is speaking out against Delta Airline. She claims her puppy was held in custody for over 33 hours over paperwork issues. Doggone it. Eight-month-old German Shepherd, Bunny. Now, that's wrong. Uh, attack, Bunny. Attack. Why would you name your German Shepherd Bunny? That doesn't sound like uh, a frightening. Point. It's like a big guy named Tiny. I guess. I guess. So she says, they've got all the documents they need on their scratch pad to release her. Now, this is beyond me. Scratch pad, is that something? Is that like a technology thing? Or does she mean a piece of paper that they scratch notes on? Randy, are you aware of scratch pad is a techno term? I don't. If it's not signed by a doctor, they're not going to let you through if it's trying to be a service dog. Okay. All right. So what she says is she paid pet air carrier, get this, $3,000 to transport Bunny on a Delta flight. Now, I'm not exactly sure how long this flight uh, is. Right from, I guess it's from Guatemala. Fine, it's international. Why does it cost $3,000 to, to carry a, a, a bag or a box with a little eight-month-old uh, well, puppy I'll in it? I'll tell you, having researched this a little bit because we've got to ship some dogs, yeah? is that this, the companies that do this, they, they pick the dog up at the house, they prepare the dog, they have the carrier for the dog, they stay with they the dog. They give the dog a service animal so it won't be nervous in the airplane? Exactly. So there's a lot of little other costs involved. I thought they just threw it in the hole. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. this is ridiculous. So $3,000. Well, and then for an international trip, the dog's got to be quarantined. They've got to make sure it's not carrying yeah, any diseases from Guatemala. Could it get yeah. any worse for the airlines? First, they beat people up. Then they kidnap dogs. What's next? Tipping over wheelchairs? Not not a good time for the airlines. Talk Radio 790. K-A-B-C. KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So, uh, Anthony Weiner, it's all about sex when it comes to Anthony. But, you know, some some stories, there's just the gift that keep on giving. You know, there was O.J. Simpson, there was Marv Alpert, sure. Michael Jackson, and the Huma Abedin, Anthony Weiner soap opera. I mean, just on and on. And finally, finally, Huma has sued for divorce. 
I, I don't know if you've read this book, uh, Rob Marenko, called Shattered. It's a memoir of the of the Hillary campaign, and it's a really terrific uh, campaign book. But she, they talk about how for years Hillary said to Huma, because Huma Abedin was um, the closest person to Hillary, for years she'd encourage uh, Huma to, you know, dump this guy, you know, get rid of him because he's just so bizarre and the sexting and so on. And no, Huma would stay with him, stay with him. And then, of course... Yeah, well, you could argue that Hillary lost the presidency because of Anthony Weiner. Because when Comey went public, what, 11 days before the election in October, it was all about Anthony's laptop and the sexting and so on. So, you know, Hillary's attitude, I'm sure now as well, I'm glad you gave it a good shot. You know, uh, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, Wait, Hillary was giving him a crap for staying by her name. Absolutely. Yes. Uh huh. She, mm. their little Huma bit. was just following Hillary's footsteps. Right. A little irony there. So so what's happened is uh, Huma has filed for divorce. It's called anonymous versus anonymous in the court system. Like anybody, you know, can't figure out who these people are. Uh, originally, she'd filed for an uncontested divorce, but now he's contesting it. Apparently, How did he contest he, he wants custody of the kid. He, oh, want, he wants boy. visitation rights for their five-year-old son, Jordan. That, uh, child, that custody hearing will last two seconds. They just post that picture <laughs> yeah. that he sent to the 15-year-old of him next to his kid. With little Anthony Weiner, and I think he, she's going to get full custody. Oh, this guy—he's he, definitely a mental patient. So, uh, so he's—he's he's, of course he's pled guilty. He's contesting the divorce, though, and he, her lawyer says this is just another example of his personality disorder. It's going to ruin the fan, family financially. They say if it's contested, it's going to cost over a hundred grand. Uh, so far, Anthony Weiner doesn't even have a divorce lawyer. That that'd be a great show if he tries to to represent himself. But meantime, you know, he's finally pled guilty to a felony. He shows up in court. He's, he's crying openly. He's admitted to conduct he knew was morally wrong and unlawful. And, and the felony that he's pled guilty to is transferring obscene material to a minor. And the sentence could be up to 10 years in prison. Uh, it, there was this big investigation, of course, a series of sexually explicit pictures and messages that Weiner sent last year to a 15-year-old girl in North Carolina. I mean, th it, what what is this? Is this an uncontrollable habit? Uh, as big a dirtbag as this guy is, I think his case is actually evidence for the fact, Rob Marenko, that some impulses, some addictive tendencies are truly uncontrollable. Because when you think about what he threw away, he threw away his promising career in Congress. Twice. He, twice. He ran for mayor, and that was gone. He threw away his wife's career. He threw away Hillary's presidential ambitions. All for what? So he could send naked pictures to women he doesn't know? And, you know, who knows? I guess, I guess he did know the girl was 15. I mean, this is insane. Well, I don't think it is. I think he is just... I think he's a despicable person. He's got a huge ego. And this was important to him, and he decided, well, so far, no consequences. I'll just keep going. Well, but as the years went by, there were a lot of consequences. First, I have to say, when I first saw him years ago, before any of the sexting stuff happened, I saw him, I don't know, flipping channels in their C-SPAN, and I see this guy on the floor of Congress. And 
the spittle is flying out of his his mouth. He was absolutely rabid and enraged about something. And he was giving a very partisan Democrat speech. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong with this guy. Yeah. And sure enough, it turned out. But when you say, you know, it was important to him, don't you think at some point you have to maybe cut a guy a little slack and say, you have to have a screw loose if you are going to throw away so much I mean, I don't know if it means getting an intensive, you know, therapy and so on. I mean, we were reporting a few months ago here on the air about how he went to have equine therapy and they had pictures of him in a dopey uh, horse helmet and he's riding around. Yeah. And he was sort of leering at a blonde babe who was on the next horse next to him. <laughs> of yeah, that's, that's what he does. Yeah, that's really smart. But, I mean, I just think that, uh, yeah, I mean, the psychologists would have a field day analyzing this guy. I mean, maybe self-loathing, uh, self-destructiveness is part of it. But when you think about what he had and what he uh, threw away, I mean, he's going to have to register as a sex offender. Mm -hmm. He's going to be facing a prison term. Uh, he's going to, while he's out, he's got no, no cell phone. That's a smart uh, move. Uh, no passport. Now, so here's here's what he's probably going to get. The prosecutors are thinking a sentence of 21 to 27 months would be fair. So in the ballpark of two years, the sentencing is going to is going to happen in early September. Uh, the investigation actually started last September. This is what kicked things off that affected the campaign. A newspaper reported that he had an online relationship with a minor. And because this newspaper said Anthony Weiner is texting with a kid, that caused the FBI to go out and seize his laptop. So they're looking through his laptop for evidence that he's doing stuff with, with uh, underage kids. And in the laptop, what do you know, the FBI finds emails to his wife which led directly to the announcement by Comey, the FBI director, that he was opening up a brand new investigation. And then, uh, what, two or three days before the election, he says, oh, sorry, nothing to see here. Uh, you, you, you know, return to your homes. So, I mean, talk about the irony. Uh, it just you was know, a weird coincidence uh, of this newspaper sort of spilling the beans, leading to the FBI to find the laptop. I don't get it. First of all, how do you get, as a prosecutor, from a maximum sentence of 10 years down to asking for maybe 21 or 27 months, what's the mitigating factor here? He's a repeat offender. He's a dirtbag that kept up the behavior. And perhaps the Royal Oaks philosophy that this that? guy, with what I was just expressing oh, to you. Oh, he can't help himself? They can't help oh, himself. get out of here. Irresistible impulse. You can say that it's sexual addiction, or may, maybe they want to give him a lighter sentence there's, because he helped Hillary first of all, get elected. There's no such thing. <laughs> there's there's no such of it. thing as sexual addiction. People like sex. Some like it more than others. And, Wasn't uh, David Duchovny? Uh, didn't they send him off to sex rehab? Yeah, sex or rehab was that, is... Was that a PR stunt for Californication? Se sex rehab is something you go to as an excuse for your behavior <laughs> that you really, really like. And uh, so you call it an addiction, you got a disease, nobody can blame you for anything. So silly. you don't think that it's an addiction? No, I don't. I think there's uh, sex is, feels good, and a lot of people like to continue having it, even when it has detrimental co consequences. And if you get caught having sex that's wrong for whatever reason, either the person's a minor or you're married or, or whatever outside the marriage, then your excuse is to go to rehab. 
It's it. Every Hollywood celebrity, every agent. I think tells a lot of celebrities that. use that, but I also think there is sexual addiction, and some people have such a compulsive problem it gets in the way of their actual life to the point where they do things that damage their entire lives. And I, I mean, in that way, it's analogous to drugs. I mean, couldn't you just lump it together with the drug addiction? Any kind of gratifying, any kind of gratifying oh, act right, that makes you feel good fine. can be addictive and compulsive. You you tell me that a bank robber that habitually robs banks because not bank robbers don't really get a lot of money from robbing banks believe it or not they don't but they keep doing it they're serial bank robbers because they get this adrenaline rush so let's go lighter on them because it's just kind of an impulse i don't think they should go lighter on them i just think sexual addiction is a thing i think if if uh, rob were on the bench we'd call him maximum rob oh yeah, absolutely yeah. i i have been the foreman of a number of juries and i'll tell you what <laughs> There is no sympathy in that juror room. So you were able to use your newsman street cred to influence the, your fellow jurors? Uh, yeah, that didn't, didn't come out. No. Do you think the uh, public humiliation aspect has anything to do with him getting a lighter sentence? He's already kind of been judged by everybody in America. Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet that's true. That. I think judges take that into account. Yeah. They also take into account remorse. I mean, you know, theoretically, that shouldn't matter, and yet they do. Judges actually uh, He's remorse. take Sorry. that into account and give you less time if if the judge really feels that you are totally contrite, as opposed to somebody who's saying, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't I'm not saying sorry at all. He's sorry he got caught. Well, he was forced to resign from Congress in 2011. That's when the, the explicit picture he sent from his Twitter account first became public. Initially, he lied. He said, oh, he was hacked. I didn't do it. And then he admitted, okay, I guess I lied that he had sent, he sent the image. And then in 2013, he tried to run for mayor of New York, and that self-destructed. And then the weird thing was that documentary, Huma cooperated in the making of a documentary about their life and what they'd gone through and the campaign and so on. I mean, how weird was that? Hillary couldn't have been happy about that decision. Why didn't he just blame the Russians? I mean, people are buying that nonsense. Why not? The Russians hacked his penis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe it is a matter of endorphins firing, uh, but uh, I don't know. Uh, Rob, I, I think you, your attitude is a little harsher than the judicial system. Yeah, I probably. think they make distinctions between people who simply love the idea of making a lot of money and the thrill of the chase and the bank robbery as opposed to somebody who really has a physical addiction to a drug or, in this case, Maybe has a has a mental addiction to uh, to, to texting. Uh, to me, what he lost was so incredibly massive compared to what he got out of you know the stupid practice of texting his pictures to strangers. It's just almost uh, inconceivable that somebody would be that self destructive. And that's how you can compare it to drugs or anything like that, because the rush of getting what you need is so important to you that nothing else in your life matters. All right. So, Rob, Randy and I have outvoted you. Wiener only gets two years. We're you know sorry. what? We're if, sorry. If Randy is involved in the vote, I feel fine about it. <laughs> All fine. right. Good. Yeah. 651 The Time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Bill Thomas, how are things looking? What time is it? Time to get smart. It's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre. Six the time talk radio seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Memorial Day. I hope you are having a wonderful holiday weekend. And we are delighted to be joined by Patrick Buchanan. 
Pat, it's an honor to uh, talk to you. Welcome to KBC. Thank you very kindly. Uh, you know, if I took the time to recap your career, we wouldn't have time for an interview. Uh, but suffice it to say, for uh, the one or two people in the uh, vast uh, KBC radio and Internet audience who aren't thoroughly familiar with your career, you've been a senior advisor to Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, uh, an original host on CNN's Crossfire. You sought the Republican presidential nomination in 1992 and 1996. So you not only have had a front row seat to American history, you've been on the stage. So your newest book is uh, Nixon's White House Wars, The Battles That Made and Broke a President and Divided America Forever. It is brand new and it follows up on your last book, The Greatest Comeback, in 2014, also about the career of Richard Nixon. I, I have to say I've read every word of both books. Uh, I love them. Uh, I, I'm kind of a buff. I probably read a dozen uh, Nixon and uh, Eisenhower biographies, and uh, it was just such a pleasure to read uh, your two most recent books. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, you were an editorial writer in St. Louis in the mid-60s. Uh, how'd you wind up uh, working for Richard Nixon? Well, I'd earlier had an encounter with him. I was a teenage caddy at the Burning Tree Country Club in uh, Washington, D.C. I grew up in D.C. And one afternoon, uh, the Vice President of the United States, Richard Nixon, came out and they put his golf bag out there, the plaid one, and I was the only guy on the bench along with my friend Pete Cook. And the, uh, the pro at Burning Tree called on the tours two of us, and we went around 18 holes with Vice President Nixon, and 10 years later, I introduced myself to him at a cocktail party in Belleville, Illinois, when I was working in St. Louis, and said, in 1965, if he was going to have a run again, I wanted to get aboard early. And so I did. That's a great story. Now, let's move to the Nixon term. Of course, Spiro Agnew was his vice president, and uh, Agnew made quite a name for himself with his speeches directed at the news media, phrases like nattering nabobs of negativism. Tell us about your involvement with the vice president there. Well, when Nixon, uh, Nixon ran into real trouble in his first term in November, uh, massive demonstrations. We were in the White House, 250,000, 350,000 people each month coming to D.C., buses surrounding the building, troops in the basement. Nixon gave his great silent majority speech asking the country to stand with him on November 3rd, 1969. And the country rallied to him while the networks attacked him. And at that point, I suggested and then wrote at the president's behest a speech from Vice President Agnew really ripping the bark off the national networks, and all three networks foolishly carried it live in prime time. And it was the beginning of the career of Spiro T. Agnew as the scourge, I mean, as the great, uh, the great tribune of middle America. And it lasted for several years until finally he ran into trouble. But he was a great friend and a very courageous guy. And as I wrote, he'd, unfortunately, he brought, he'd been governor of Maryland and brought some of the Annapolis values into the White House. We're talking with Patrick Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. Uh, the the Watergate um, situation hits. Uh, the issue of, of the tapes uh, you, you talk about in your book, of course. Uh, tell us what happened in terms of your proposal for, for burning some of the tapes. And also, just as a follow-up, I'm curious as to whether you know, did Nixon ever consider, even before the existence of the tape system was disclosed, did he ever consider destroying the tapes given what he knew was on them? Um, here's what happened. And we, that, that is about five years into the Nixon White House, which had achieved a 
49 state victory in 1972. And what happened was the Watergate broke the whole issue and what did the president know and when did he know it. And we learned in the summer of 1973 that Nixon had a taping system that recorded automatically everything he said on the phone or in the Oval Office or in his executive office building. And I knew from my personal conversations with the president that he often just sort of had a drink in the afternoon and talked about people and, and as men do. And I recommended to him that he keep all the tapes of his conversations with John Dean and with Brezhnev and foreign leaders and take the rest of the tapes out and simply burn and destroy them. And the president was prepared to consider that. He called in Haig and Fred Bazard, his lawyer, and considered doing that, and they told him it would be obstruction of justice. I don't believe that is true at all. Nobody had subpoenaed those tapes, and they were executive privilege, and he had made them foolishly in my judgment, so he did not do that. And he wrote in his memoirs, not only did he consider it, but had he done it, as I had recommended, his presidency would have survived. And I agree with him 100%. We're talking with Patrick Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. You said in your book, Pat, that uh, at the far end of complexity is often simplicity. And you were talking about the Vietnam War, the, the simple truth being we were just unwilling to win it. What about your observation uh, in your book that in spite of consistent conservative victories over the decades, we still seem to be looking at wealth redistribution and an obsession with income e equality? I'm wondering if the simplistic answer there is folks like free stuff, and once you give it to them, you can't take it away, which might explain the Obamacare situation. Well, I think you've got a very valid point. Why have we continually been losing in policy battles? When we win at elections, I wrote conservative votes, liberal victories back in 1975. I mean, we had won all these victories with Nixon, and we haven't, hadn't moved the dial in our direction at all. As a matter of fact, the great society was roaring along. And I tend to agree with you. I think maybe the great trend in the West has been since the 1930s in the United States has been toward government providing more and more benefits for more and more people as we age and become more dependent and government steps in with one program after another after another and the republicans what they basically do is they don't roll back these gains they simply retreat to a new defense line and try to stop further gains and they continue this long process of retreat and that induces, uh, well, I think a certain sense of pessimism about what we can accomplish. And we see it manifest in this battle, I think, over the repeal of Obamacare. I mean, for, for 10 years, for, excuse me, for six, seven years now, people have been getting significant medical benefits at very little charge, and they're not going to give them up, and they number in the millions, and if the Democrats rouse them, many of them being Trump supporters, they may come out and defeat the Republicans in 2018. So you see the battle going on on the Hill, and it does not look good from the Republican standpoint, despite the fact Republicans got the presidency in both houses of Congress. Pat Buchanan is author of Nixon's White House Wars. Pat, every president is, is important in history, of course, but Nixon was really important. Eight years as vice president, he makes the, the comeback that you describe in, the, in your previous book about Richard Nixon. Uh, the two terms, the landslide, uh, Watergate, and he, he was a towering figure. 
in your view, what made him such a towering figure compared to so many other presidents? Was it just being caught up in this vortex of events, or was it something about him? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's both. I mean, those were dramatic times. I was a kid, little kid, during World War II, and that was just extraordinary. And event when you were growing up, from three to seven years old, I was during that war. And Nixon came into office in '46, very young. He suddenly maneuvered to become the youngest vice president of the United States at 40 years old in 1953. And then he ran against Jack Kennedy in that great classic election. Then he was defeated and considered dead, and then he led the comeback. Suddenly he won the presidency with 43%, and then wins it with uh, 49 states. No one could believe it because he was not charismatic. Extremely able, extremely intelligent, driven. I think one quality Nixon had was perseverance. He would not quit. He might say he's down, but he would get up again and come back fighting. And he had talent, ability, and we had some luck because of what happened in the 1960s. The way you take a look at it, <laughs> judge it by a certain modern standard, Richard Nixon was on 55 covers of Time magazine from 1946 to 1974, 75, more than any other figure of that era, including Ronald Reagan, who was second in all-time covers of Time magazine with about 40. So he was just a dominant, ever-present figure then. And people who say, you know, well, Nixon, wasn't he? he went to China and he got caught in Watergate and resigned, do not really understand or know the the history of that era, and if they read about the biographies of Nixon, and frankly those two books of mine which cover eight and a half years of his comeback and his presidency, I think you see what a complex and extraordinarily accomplished figure he was. And The Greatest Comeback is the name of uh, Pat Buchanan's uh, book uh, previously, and then uh, Nixon's White House Wars, the new one. So, Pat, you uh, have uh, deeply held conservative views. Uh, you, uh, in the book, point out you threatened to resign from your uh, position as advisor and speechwriter for Nixon because of uh, uh, the opening to China, you know, wage and price controls, the EPA, three of the four Supreme Court justices he appointed voted for Roe versus Wade. Does all that... Uh, is, is that a f source of frustration for you in terms of the divergence between your personal philosophy and the Nixon presidency? You know, Ronald, at some point when I was with Nixon, I had to wake up and realize that while I was a Goldwater conservative, he was not. And what Nixon was is, I mean, he was an internationalist, but not a globalist in foreign policy. He had a vision there. Social political issues, we were very, very close in terms of political strategy, putting together the great new majority that gave Republicans the presidency five out of six times and from about 1968 to 92. But on domestic policy, uh, he continued the great society and there were any number of innovations. I mean, he ended the draft. He kept, provided the 18-year-old vote. He had Title IX, created the EPA and OSHA, and the Cancer Institute was elevated. All of these things, uh, accomplishments in there, suggest to me that he had grown up in the Depression. He was basically, what, as he himself described it, a progressive Republican in the TR sense, Teddy Roosevelt sense, not FDR sense. And you had to realize that. And, uh, and you came to realize that and, and, and that you were fighting to, to get as much as you could in terms of the Reaganite conservative platform into play 
But you knew that it, in the final analysis, he was elected president and I wasn't. <laughs> and Roger Ailes uh, died recently. There's the famous story about him bumping into Nixon when Ailes was a producer for the Mike Douglas show. Did you have much contact with Roger Ailes in terms of him being part of Nixon's orbit? Well, yeah, the contact I had with Roger was not extensive, but in 1968, we had these telephones, and Nixon would sit in a chair interviewed by Bud Wilkinson, the former Oklahoma coach, and the great coach for Oklahoma. And Wilkinson would ask questions, and Roger produced the shows, and I was the fellow in the back room that got all the questions and rewrote them and handed them to the gals to type up and sent them out to Nixon. So he and I colluded in these telethons. One of them was before the Oregon primary. And then for four hours, this telethon went on the night before the 1968 election. Uh, two hours, one hour break, and another two hours. And I think that was really instrumental in Nixon's very narrow victory in 68. And Roger and I both worked on it. And uh, he plays a larger role than I do in that book, The Selling of the President, which was not altogether complimentary. <laughs> but uh, that's where we worked together. He was extremely able, no doubt about it, able, gutsy, knowledgeable. I worked with him in a, when I was director of communications for Reagan. Uh, when he came in and did the famous drug speech with the president and first lady sitting down and talking about it casually to the country. We're talking with Pat Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. So there's a lineage to modern American conservatism, and it goes from Buckley to Barry Goldwater to Ronald Reagan. And, and I think it then goes to you, Pat Buchanan. But let's go back to the fellow who's first on the list. What was Buckley's relationship with Nixon and Reagan like, and what was your relationship with Buckley like? Well, when I got to work for Richard Nixon in 1965, Nixon had made a statement down off the record or on background that the Buckleyites are a greater danger than the Birchers, uh, the John Birch Society. Strong language. <laughs> I had to interpret it so that it was not... <laughs> I interpreted it. I got in touch with Buckley and Russia at National Review and said, here's what the president meant. He meant they're so effective, these fellows, that they're far more far more effective than the Birchers in terms of claiming their wing of the party, representing their wing of the party. Anyhow, it was, a, it was a, a way to bring them back together. And so I brought Nixon together with, uh, or I was in it, in on bringing him together with Nixon. And they came up to Nixon's apartment back in 1967. Buckley strongly supported Nixon through that time. And uh, he invited me up to the Yale club. I had lunch with him and with Russia. And so we became friends through that period, and we were both on the trip to China. And Buckley was as uh, appalled by it as I was alarmed by it. And so we, we basically became, Buckley and I were friends through that period and through the Watergate when Buckley was supportive of Nixon. And then, uh, then though, he sort of broke with Nixon, and, and we were friends through the Reagan era. And when I ran, I think Buckley endorsed me, but he was also critical. So I was less close to him in late in life than uh, I was earlier. When you read a bunch of the Nixon biographies, Pat, you you hear descriptions of somebody who's sort of pathologically awkward around folks who weren't in his inner circle. Uh, it's a, it's kind of hard to generalize of, with all of the different takes in, in the books, but you knew him. You were in the inner circle. Did you have a general impression uh, of, of him in terms of whether the biographer's treatment was fair? I mean, what kind of a man really was he to be around? He was... Uh I mean, this is grossly exaggerated. There's no doubt 
you know, someone said because Bobby Kennedy had trouble sort of meeting and shaking hands with people, uh, and and as as Nixon did, Nixon was not sort of the charismatic character that Jack Kennedy was at all. But the idea, uh, and, and Nixon clearly would start the conversation quickly on some subjects so he could establish a relationship. But I spent, I mean, hundreds, thousands of hours with President Nixon. And he could be funny, witty, caustic. Uh, we would go out on his boat. He could he used me. I was, you know, half his age as a foil. The way, you know, people do, he'd make jokes to Canada. What do you think of that? And have a good laugh at my expense. But Shelley and I, my wife, they knew him very well. We knew Mrs. Nixon well. And, and you know, he was not a, you know, a gregarious kind of character, but he was a very interesting man to work with. He was intelligent. He cared about policy, politics, and issues. He was addicted to these things. And, uh, and we got on famously when I, when I was with him from 66 to 68, before he went in the White House. I would spend, you know, two, three, four hours in his office talking with him. And I can assure you, you know, the, uh, uh, he was not in the least awkward. He was very insightful. And uh, so I think about Nixon, they take certain aspects and balloon them and exaggerate them and make them be, uh, represent the whole man. And it's not the whole man. He did have flaws. He did have enemies. Uh, but he was... Uh, extraordinarily interesting man. We're talking with Patrick Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. Pat, last question. If you read the books about Eisenhower, it sounds like there was some resentment. I mean, frankly, there's a lukewarm response to the Checkers crisis that Nixon resented. I tried to dump him in 56 from the ticket. In 1960, Eisenhower said, give me a week, maybe I can answer your question about something good Nixon has done. Was there resentment that kind of lingered, or, or did Nixon get past all that? Well, Nixon, uh, let me say, Nixon did the eulogy for Ike. Um, and after he did it, his military aide was with him in the room outside and said uh, uh, that the president, Nixon, uh, broke down and bawled like a baby. I think he looked upon Ike as a fatherly figure, as an uncle, as a tough uncle. And there's no question in my judgment that at times President Eisenhower treated President Nixon, who was loyal to a fault to him, treated him badly and, and treated him uh, and, and, and really uh, took his contributions to the cause of the Republican Party and Ike. Um, didn't really relegate to them the, the admiration and respect he should have. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Ike was a very tough, hard man. I mean, he's got that, you know, the, the, I like Ike with a big smile, but this was a, this was a general that put together the Normandy invasion and he could be very rough and tough. On, on, on rivals and subordinates. All right, Pat Buchanan, author of Nixon's White House Wars. What a treat to chat with you, and I hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day. Well, delight, delighted. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks a lot, Pat. The time, 725, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the freeways? Talk Radio 790 KABC. Our house in the middle of us. Seven the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Memorial Day. Hope you are having a very nice long weekend and are thinking about the meaning of it all. Doug uh, did such a great column. I don't know if you saw it, Rob uh, Marenko, in the Daily News about uh, Memorial Day and uh, the true meaning of it. If uh, folks, if you didn't uh, check it out already, do so. Uh, Doug did a fantastic job in that column. So we are now delighted to uh, switch gears and... Uh, 
We're going to talk real estate here with uh, Stephen Spearer. He's a real estate expert. He's host on TalkRadio1.com. He's going to help explain this housing market uh, sizzle we have going. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing today? I am well. Good morning, world. Good morning, Rob. Nice to talk to you again, Steve. And uh, gosh, the headline is, I guess, L.A. County median home prices uh, tie record high. Um, the housing market is just going through the roof. What is behind the situation? Well, this is really good for sellers and <clears throat> seller for, for, for sellers and for owners, because for owners, their equity is going up. This is not good for buyers who are having more trouble getting into the market. This is not good for realtors. Because there is a low volume in terms of the number of sales. Sellers are holding on. People are, some people are afraid to move up to a larger house because they're not, they're not confident in their ability to keep their job. They're nervous. Other people are not able to downsize because they're concerned that if they sell their house, they really will be out of the market or won't be able to find a house for sale because there are so many more buyers right now than there are sellers. That drives the supply side, the, the demand side, without driving the supply side. So the difficulty with this market is that it's not good, really, for anybody except someone who actually wants to sell their home right now. You know, it, it's weird. Of, you're seeing this phenomenon. I guess of the last five years or so, we've seen a steady re recovery, uh, and you see this phenomenon of of people actually offering more than the asking price. I mean, when I was a boy, you know, when somebody would ask 400 grand for a house, nobody would ever come close to that. Well, we're going to offer 330 and they work their way up. Now, as I understand it, uh, Steve, people are offering uh, the asking price and more, and it's like an auction deal where you're bidding it up. Well, that's exactly right, and skilled realtors who represent sellers are able to create a bidding war, and the result is that we have seen uh, the, the highest number of written offers I've seen on a single family residence was 62. Yikes. And I've seen enough of them where they have 10, 15, 20 written offers, and it becomes a beauty contest. You hear stories about foreign investors showing up with giant bags of cash. I guess China is the most common example you hear about. Plunking down full cash offers, you know, again, in excess of asking prices. Is this still a, a phenomenon that that we're, we're seeing? Because a lot of people are resentful and they're, they're feeling like you know, you know, local folks just don't really have a chance because they're, they're not able to compete with that kind of uh, throwing that kind of money around. We are still seeing double-digit percentages of sales that are all cash, no loan, no loan contingency. But, well, they're not all foreign investors. We have a lot of people whose baby boomer parents are lending or giving their money to their children who are in their 20s and 30s to help them buy a house. And that is resulting in, in, in bidding up prices and throwing out anybody who says, yeah, I've got to have a loan contingency because from a seller's point of view... You can't have confidence that the sale is going to close if there has to be a loan because the appraisals of property are lagging the market and showing lower numbers than these high, high purchase prices. So someone who has to say, look, I'll get a loan and I need a loan contingency frequently is just shut out. We're talking with Stephen Spearer. He's a real estate expert. He's host on TalkRadio1.com, and uh, he's a lawyer, and uh, you can visit his site, PracticalLawyer.com. That's P-R-A-C-T-I-C-I-L-L-A-W, 
Y-E-R.com. Steve, you see it throughout the Southland. I mean, uh, it looks like San Diego has gotten up uh, 7% or so to 525000 average sale. Orange County is even higher, $675,000. Uh, Los Angeles is in that neighborhood. Uh, I mean, that's, that's you know, shutting out a lot of people uh, who you know, are, are trying to get an advantage from the comeback in the economy, but the prices are just out of, out of their reach. Well, that's exactly right. And what you can see, if you want to see the ghost of Christmas future, look at San Francisco, where the people who work as busboys or uh, who are parking cars or running or operating in car washes, they have no chance of owning a home or living even in the area. They've got to move out. And that's what's happening. If you look at the uh, beach areas, uh, Manhattan, Hermosa, Redondo Beach, uh, Long Beach, Palos Verdes, or up into the Brentwood, Santa Monica, West Los Angeles area, you're finding really only really very well-off people who are able to even consider buying a house. Now, are the big increases in the coastal cities that we've talked about causing the Inland Empire to be more attractive? I mean, it's traditionally a lower-cost area. It seems like developers are starting to ramp up construction uh, inland as well. Yes, they are. It's, it's a strong connection, and the reason is that there's now the theoretical promise that there's going to be mass transit, though I think it's going to take years and years before it's practical. But a lot of people are willing to make the horrendous drive just to be able to afford a house. So, yes, well, we're seeing increased housing starts in the Inland Empire and in other areas outside of the beach cities. You know, a lot of people point to the the fact that we were we had a political agenda by Obama to get folks uh, into home ownership, even if it means getting them loans with the, so the so called liars loans, where you really don't have the the collateral or the income uh, to support the the loan. Do you think that we're going to be tempted to go down that road again in order to solve the problem of gee, the prices are too high, people can't buy homes, and therefore we're going to duplicate the mistake? of 10 years ago and, and let people get into homes when maybe they're setting themselves up for foreclosure. Warm-hearted, well-intentioned, and wrong-headed people will always say, gee, we've got to help people buy homes. They'll say, you know, these people have everything they need to qualify except a down payment. Well, if you don't have a down payment, you're not qualified. And this is what happened. And you mentioned President Obama is plenty to blame there, but plenty to blame with Presidents W. Bush and Clinton and the Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, said, look, we only have 63, 64% of the people in the country own houses. We've got to get it higher. And so they made loans easier to get. They made larger loans easier to get. And they fueled purchases by people who simply would never be able to keep up the payments. That's what led to the bubble. No, we don't see a return to that. I think that those days... We'll, if they're coming back, they're not coming back now. And we're not in a bubble right now, Royal. This is not a bubble. What, the people who are getting loans now are tending to get long-term fixed-rate loans, 15- or 30-year loans, where the payment doesn't change, the interest rate doesn't change, everything stays the same, and those people are more likely to be able to hold it. What happened in the bubble is we had people who got loans at a teaser rate so that in, a, in six months, a year, two years, and sometimes three the payment would all of a sudden reset to double or triple. The interest rate would go up. People would stop paying payments. And that created a cascade effect where more and more people stopped paying payments. We ended up nationwide foreclosing on between 6 and 7 million houses 
That's not what's happening today. Stephen Spear, a real estate expert and host on TalkRadio1.com. Thanks so much for sharing part of your Memorial Day with us. You have a good one. Always a pleasure. You too, Royal. Thanks a lot. Time is 745 here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Hey, Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the freeways? Freedom don't come free. Radio 790 KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre this Memorial Day. We make it easy to hear all our news and podcasts on your smartphone and iPads. Download the 790 KABC app from iTunes and Google Play and from KABC.com and take KABC wherever you go. Download the KABC app and listen longer from News Talk Evolved 790 KABC. Well, we now turn to our reporter, James Rojas. He is out and about and going to let us know just how Memorial Day is being recognized here in Los Angeles. James, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much. And uh, I know that you're uh, on the streets there and uh, today is Memorial Day and hopefully folks are uh, remembering its uh, true meaning. What, what, uh, what's going on out there? Yeah, that's right. I'm here in East L.A. Uh, at the corner of East Cesar Chavez Avenue and Lorena Street, and it's the 70th anniversary of this 24-hour Memorial Day vigil. Uh, we're just a little over two hours away from the beginning of this, uh, this memorial service to honor uh, not just the Mexican-Americans who gave up their lives while serving in the military, but also everyone else who lived in this neighborhood and did the same thing. Uh, this vigil began at 10 o'clock yesterday morning, and since then, at least one person has been standing guard in front of the memorial taking turns, and they're taking turns about every three hours or so, and then the next person of, a ne of another branch of, of the military, they come in and uh, stand guard. And um, I spoke to one U.S. veteran. He served in the Vietnam uh, War. His name is Howard Hernandez, and uh, he talked about what he hopes people take away from the service here today, and here's a clip. Our community has always been representative of the wars that we've been involved in, and we've always made the sacrifices. Today is Memorial Day. We memorialize all the sacrifices that have come from our community and that will continue coming from our community because it affects not only those who have passed, but also their families. And he says it's it's absolutely necessary for minorities like him to serve their country because uh, Mexican-Americans have served in every U.S. war since the Revolutionary War. And uh, at 10 o'clock this morning, the official service will begin, and we're expecting speakers, uh, including Congresswoman Lucille Royal Allard, Assemblyman Jimmy Gomez, County Supervisor Hilda Solis, and uh, also Councilman Jose Huizar. And you know, James Rojas, it's, it's, it's so great to hear the reaction that, that you're running into because, I mean, let's face it, we've been through a, just a really brutal period over the last year or two of, of total uh, divisiveness. And, and, of course, it's, it's not over. But at least for one day, for, for people to kind of take a break from politics uh, is, is really, it, it feels good. I mean, is that your sense that, that people are taking a moment to remember, you know, we're honoring the fallen as opposed to just so, still business as usual, kind of carping over politics? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, Howard, he talked about how, you know, this isn't a day for, for barbecues. This isn't a day just to have an extra day off. It's out here just to show your gratitude. And, and for whether or not you support any any uh, any war, really, uh, it's, it's to show that respect for those who were willing 
to stand up and, and represent the country and fight for us and fight for our freedoms. And so you definitely get that sense. We're expecting uh, of a, a crowd of around 100 people or so. So we should see the, start seeing them coming in around 9.30, 9.45, and then again the ceremony officially begins at 10. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. I, and, I, and I think people do sense, in spite of the fact that we all get up, uh, get involved in our, in our petty arguments, uh, you know, people focus on what's important to them. You know, some folks are focused on the market system and freedom, and other people are focused on, on compassion and income inequality and so on. But I think at the end of the day, everybody kind of realizes that all of that is secondary to security. If we aren't strong, if we don't have people who are willing to put their lives on the line and fight and die, whether it's soldiers overseas or, or cops here, none of the rest of the stuff works because the bad guys are just going to come and take it all away. They're going to take your market system and they're going to take your uh, your compassion away. So I think this is this is a tremendous day for for people to to recognize. I, I was reading a, the story here. One of them, one of the gentlemen, was talking about how he lost a brother in Korea. He was killed in Korea, and so ever since then, I mean, it's been decades now. He's been focused on the real meaning of Memorial Day. So it sounds like you're running into that sense as you uh, walk the streets out there today. Oh, definitely. And the, the also, uh, to show the, of, uh, the show of appreciation doesn't only go to those who gave their lives, but also the family members still living in this neighborhood who may have never gotten that closure of, of, of losing somebody in battle. And so not only is the ceremony for obviously the fallen, but also for this community uh, as a show of, of strength and, and unity uh, for, for the families that lost so much also. All right, KBC reporter James Rojas, thanks for checking in. You have a great day out there. Hey, you too. Take care. All right, see you later. Talk Radio 790 KABC 754, the time. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, the world's scariest mannequin. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. Beautiful morning. To get smart, it's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre. Six the time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre on this Memorial Day. Hey, 790-KABC welcomes John Mellencamp with Emmy Lou Harris and Carlene Carter. The Greek Theater, June 18th. If you'd like tickets, just call one hour from now. Call her 7 at 1-800-222-5222. We'll win the tickets. That's 1-800-222-5222. Well, the president is back from the big foreign trip, and uh, everybody's trying to figure out the way forward. Uh, uh, is he going to have his tweets edited by his lawyers? What's going to happen on this Russia situation? Impact on California politics? What better expert to help us sort this out than Sean Steele, California National Committeeman for the Republican National Committee? Sean, welcome to the program. Hey, it's a, never a dull moment. Absolutely. The man is backing down. He's uh, shaking up uh, Europe a little bit, and they heard a lecture that they've never heard quite before. Yeah, you know, backs, uh, it's funny. You, you, the you, largest concentration of, uh, of Sunni uh, leaders in, in the, that the world has ever seen mm -hmm. and uh, discusses with them that uh, ISIS has got to go, but more importantly, the theology has got to go. So it's, it was quite a trip. It really was. You know... 
one of the aspects that people have been talking about from the last few days was uh, was the NATO angle, where Trump is up there, you know, kind of wagging a finger at everybody, saying, "You know, why don't you pay your bill?" And then everyone acts shocked that he didn't say, "Oh, and by the way, I officially endorse you know, this Article Five deal by which America uh, re restates its commitment that an attack on one NATO member would be an attack on all." And I'm my reaction is. This is a deal maker for him to say, why don't you pay your bill and for him in the next breath to say, oh, by the way, yes, an attack on one will be an attack on all. So we'll be there for you. It would undermine the, the first part of his message. I really wasn't surprised that he didn't go out of his way to say, oh, by the way, you know, we're going to be there for you. I think his main message is pay your damn bill. What was your reaction? Well, not only that, uh, you got five countries that are countries that hardly afford it, like Greek like the Greece and, uh, and Estonia, but it's embarrassing. The Germans are the ones who like to tell the rest of Europe, uh, you know, that uh, open borders is a great thing. Oh, don't worry about the few of those bad apples. Uh, they're the ones that are basically dominating Europe in a, in a kind of an ugly way, and they're the ones that are paying only half of the uh, defense bills. So they always count on the Americans. You know, we still have a lot of American soldiers stationed in Germany, lots of equipment. We're the ones that are really furnishing the, the great the great defense for Europe. Uh, I don't recall, I think you, in the last uh, couple of decades from the Germans uh, or anybody else in Europe. They're arrogant. Uh, they have uh, the highest unemployment, uh, unemployment for their youth. They have sputtering economies. Uh, now they have a huge problem with a, a cultural invasion with that they've created themselves. And uh, they pretend there's no no problem here, not, not, not to worry. Trump tells them the truth, and it's the truth. It's not like an exaggeration. And, uh, and they're offended. And you know what? They need to be offended. We're talking with Sean Steele, uh, California National Committeeman for the RNC. So we're seeing this really intense cycle of criticism of the president. Do, do you think the foreign trip helped break that cycle so that he can kind of get, get into a routine, not only get into his agenda, but just sort of tamping down the criticism? Or are we just going to fall back into the cycle? I, I, we, we, we uh, the Harvard, while Trump was gone, a Harvard study, Harvard of all places came out and shows the extreme depravity of most American uh, journalists. 92%, not just are against Trump, but, but, but vociferously against Trump. Uh, and, and, and so, and at the same time, we're talking about, well, Trump's not very popular. He's only got 48% of the people supporting him. Mainstream media has less than a third of the people that believe that they're telling the truth. Trump is much more popular than American journalism. So, of course, we're going to have the same problem because the players haven't changed. Despite the fact that they've thrown everything they have, what, what could be worse? Hillary Clinton had a billion dollars. Trump had $250 million. Hillary Clinton had most of the newspapers, most of the cable shows supporting her. Uh, Trump, Trump didn't. Uh, she, she had all kinds of us, uh, what we call dark money uh, from the unions, uh, George Soros and others supporting her. And despite that overwhelming uh, power that she had, she, she, she loses. Ter terrible, flawed candidate. And by the way, Trump had a lot of problems himself. And so for, for, for Trump to be Hillary Clinton, they still can't believe that they lost. They're still trying to count the ballots. They're still trying to rationalize and figure this thing out. He's moving on. The press won't, and we have two conversations in America. Half the Americans don't believe anything that Trump says, and the other half of the Americans don't believe anything that the journalists say, and they think Trump's a hero. 
And after, and of course, the Democrats thought they were going to have a big win in all these congressional races. They're going to win in Kansas. Fell on their face. They're going to win in Montana. Fell on their face. They're getting discouraged, but more extreme at the same time. What was your reaction to the big developments on the Russia front? Uh, the firing of, of Comey, the appointment of the special prosecutor. Um, you know, Flynn, of course, has taken the fifth, and he's bargaining for immunity. Where, where do you think all that's headed? You know, it's it's hard to say, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll look straight to the Democrats on that one. You've got three major uh, voices uh, that are coming from the uh, from the Democrats saying, uh, Buzz, uh, the owner of uh, BuzzFeed is uh, among them saying, look, if we keep going down this Russia uh, rabbit hole and we don't find anything there, there, our base is going to be so upset, so discouraged uh, that uh, that they're, they're going to get burned out. And I take I take the position, go for it. Jump down that rabbit hole, throw, throw us in the briar patch, do everything you can, because that's the wrong area to attack Trump. There's a lot of things you can say about Trump, his manners, uh, his, his coarseness, but to think that he's uh, making a deal with the Russians, uh, not, not happening. And, and, and to try to find something there, when already top uh, CIA officials have said, nah, we haven't found anything. Even Comey said the same thing. So there's a lot of lot of smoke, but nothing's going to be found, and yet it's feeding into weird conspiratorial theories on the left. And by, at the end of the road, there's not going to be anything there. They're going to be holding a big basket of nothing. And they're going to wondering what what happened. How come we don't have any proof or evidence? How come not a single indictment? Because it's a big show. What did you think of uh, the take by Senator Lindsey Graham? Uh, I think his attitude was, well, okay, Democrats, you, you wanted a special prosecutor or a special counsel, and now you got it. But that's essentially going to be shutting down much of the work of the Congressional Oversight Committee and the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. Because a lot of folks, I mean, for example, Flynn and others, if they're going to be talking to a special counsel, uh, they're, they're not going to be blabbing very much in front of the congressional committees. It, 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 I thought uh, Rosenstein, the, 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 the number two guy at Justice, made a brilliant decision by taking all what we call Michigash, all this nonsense, all this stirring up the pot, giving it to a special prosecutor. Uh, who knows what a special prosecutor is going to do, but if he's halfway uh, uh, competent and looks like he is, uh, he's going to look at the evidence and see what levels of collusion, what kind of... Uh, 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 deals have been made, but so far I have talked to a lot of people. Maybe all, of, maybe you have. I haven't found a single American voter that has yet told me they were influenced to vote for uh, uh, Donald Trump because of the Russians. I mean, all countries always like to see somebody else win. Uh, remember, Obama sent his top political team to Israel against Bibi Netanyahu. I mean, these were people that had worked for Obama. Uh, Obama had supported his team going over there to try to change the government. And God knows what he was doing with the FBI and the CIA. The real problem in America is, is, is leaking. We have a lot of Obama holdovers that are leaking top American secrets to the world. It's, uh, it's, it's illegal, in some cases treasonable. We just saw this at Manchester where it looks like top uh, FBI officials had leaked information about the Manchester uh, uh, bombing. Uh, to the press, to the New York Times, and it's always the New York Times and the Washington Post. Always those two that are getting it. So there, there is a continuous series of, uh, of, of breaks of confidentiality. And by the way, uh, investigations are taking place now. They're going to be uh, those folks are going to be identified. They'll be hunted, and they'll be prosecuted. And uh, there are reports now that there may be three individuals right now 
that are on ice. CBS came out with a report over the weekend. So uh, at, once there's more, more than a few arrests and convictions and jail sentences, you're going to see that change dramatically. We're talking with Sean Steele. Yeah. Yes. Talking with Sean Steele, California National Committeeman for the RNC. So I mentioned uh, Lindsey Graham, Sean. I, I, I just saw this lovely news item, and Rob Marenko, you may have seen it. So Chief Je not Chief Justice, the Justice uh, Ginsburg of uh, the Supreme Court has given a speech about uh, women's rights and, and women and, and society and politics. And, and she says, and it's just so nice to see, you know, we've, we've got a lot of wonderful women in the United States Senate. And she mentions Diane Feinstein and Claire McCaskill. And she says, and Lindsey Graham. <laughs> That's nice. That's really nice. I just thought that that was a nice hallmark moment, you know. <laughs> How would you like to be Lindsey Graham sitting around, you know, e eating? your Flintstones uh, cereal and here uh, Justice Ginsburg refer to you as a woman. <laughs> well, it's a new age, you know, and uh, who, who, who knows how you take that? Is, is, is that a mistake? Was it intentional? No, uh, Ginsburg's, uh, Ginsburg's a, a funny person and uh, we look forward to the day that uh, she gets replaced. Well, let's switch, let's switch, Sean, to California because, uh, I mean, California is kind of a one-party state in a way. I, I mean, uh, the the Democrats are pretty close to the, the supermajority in the, the houses um, uh, up in Sacramento. In a way, I guess you have enough moderate Democrats that the Democrats don't have a total blank check. But is there any kind of strategy in the works, some sort of secret sauce to, to somehow reverse it? Because it just seems so sad, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, it seems sad that, you know, the nation's biggest state is this is this island of just monolithic one-party control. I mean, do the Republicans have a game plan to, to get back into the game? It's a, it, it, it's a toughest state in the union, I guess, besides Hawaii. Um, both houses in the legislature have super majorities by by a, a, a pretty radical group of, of people, mostly right, by the way, uh, union personnel, not well educated, not very smart, but with lots and lots of money. Uh, taking on the unions in California is, is real tough because the business community has a fraction of the money. And now... Uh, every time uh, there's a big issue in Sacramento or, or, or a big political race, uh, Governor Brown will call uh, one of the big businesses and say, if you support this Republican, you're going to have real problems with your business in the legislature. And this has been going on for years. This kind of extortion of blackmail is illegal in most parts of the country. We got a recall against a Democrat senator in Orange County, Josh Newman. The recall is going to get enough signatures, and the election will be pretty hot and heavy around September, October. That's when the gas tax of 12 cents a gallon hits the market. We talk about that theoretically, but you know how people get crazy when mm -hmm. they see their gas bill go, go up. That's one short-term strategy. Another one that's much more profound is the school charter movement. Finally, a wedge issue that Republicans and moderate Democrats can work on together. We know that California schools under the public system are largely dysfunctional, particularly with minorities. Kids don't graduate, much less than 50% at LA Unified. The quality of education is not very good. And the unions have this rule that if they run out of money, the first teachers hired are the first ones fired. Uh, and what happens is that good teachers that are enthusiastic, well-trained, are out on the street, and, and the teachers that have been around way too long, the unions protect them. This school charter movement won a profound 
earth-shaking victory in the city of Los Angeles with the LA Unified School District. You guys have been talking about that a lot. And this means there's a new coalition forming that the unions don't know what to do with. But parents, no matter what their ideology, they want quality schools, they want to be involved in their schools, they want to be able to pick their schools, and they don't want to have their kids uh, tossed around by bureaucrats or by gang members or by bad teachers. So that's another strategy. And, and finally, electing a lot of mayors, city councilmen, county supervisors is the chief goal of the Republican Party this year, next year. We're going to hope that we get a good candidate for governor. Let's uh, we're talking about Sean Steele. Let's flip back to the national level. Uh, people talk about this from a Republican perspective of a once in a lifetime opportunity. You've got the Republicans controlling the White House and both halves of Congress. And it seems like things have gotten a little bit stalled with all of the controversy over Trump and the Russia situation. Bill Clinton was famous for being able to compartmentalize. You know, he'd have his Watergate stuff and his impeachment and Lewinsky, and he'd, then he could, you know, go back to the Oval Office and actually do his job. Is, is there a secret for Trump to be able to compartmentalize and push that agenda? I mean, some people say it's maybe a good start to have his lawyers vetting his tweets. Maybe there won't be as many of them. Uh, maybe that'll be a step toward getting him to focus on the domestic agenda as opposed to fighting every fight, every brush fire that pops up. Well, he does like to react, and he is easy to get uh, get riled up. And I think bringing in lawyers, anybody, you know, the guy down the street, <laughs> to have a look at the tweets first is probably a good idea. They've been pretty calm for the last couple of weeks, but I think it's a good idea to have always that vetted. But the House and the Senate move at their own speeds, and I've got a few friends in both both uh, both areas. And they're working full time. There, there, there's a there is the, the committees are meeting. They're fastening a tax bill. I think that's probably most important. Is the tax bill, uh, and you get some immediate relief and, and really start getting an economy going. There's so many pretty simple fixes taking place, uh, and uh, Paul Ryan promised that in 200 days. So I think in the fall we're going to see some real action on that, and everybody's hungry for that. Republicans. And, and businesses and small businesses and frankly the forgotten American worker. Uh, next on the uh, on the agenda is Obamacare. The House has done their job. The Senate is now kicking that around. Uh, and and the good news about that is that you no, know, if if the Republicans do nothing, Obama's care is falling apart. Now oh, Iowa has no organized uh, system for for Obamacare. It's completely withdrawn from that state. We're seeing state after state Obamacare. Uh, insurance exchanges are falling apart. Millions are being threatened and being without insurance, all because of a of a terrible Democrat plan. So the longer you wait on Obamacare to fix it, the easier it's going to be because people are realizing it's it's a system that that can't be saved. Sean and Steele, that gives Republicans. Sean Steele, California National Committeeman for the RNC. Thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. You have a great day. Let's. Everybody honor this day. Thank you. Absolutely. See you later, Sean. It is 823. Talk Radio 790 KBC Royal in for Doug. When we come back, the kidnapping of a puppy. But in the meantime, let's check in with Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the freeways? Talk Radio 790 KABC. 837 The Time. Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal. i for Doug McIntyre. Happy Memorial Day to you all. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday weekend. Well, our show is going to get even more wonderful here, Rob Marenko, because we are now joined by Jim Murray, Inside Edition Chief Correspondent. Jim, happy Memorial Day to you. 
If it's a holiday, I'm spending it with Royal. That's I love it. Is this, this, what's wrong with you, Jim? This guy is so I nice know, to Rob, I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> so, hey, Rob, did you just say, uh, you just said that, that Tiger Woods was arrested, correct? That yeah, was our sports reporter, anyway. DUI, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, you got to get I, on I, that, Jim. I, well, I thought I misheard, Rob, so I'm looking it up, and it says he was arrested this morning in Florida at 7.18 a.m. For drunk driving and then released at 10.50. So it's my, I mean, look, people get arrested for DUI all the time, but it's 7.18 in the that morning. That, that is weird. That could be a little problem drinking. Yeah. Well, TMZ's got it that he was arrested, he was taken at around 3 a.m., so there might be conflicting information. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. maybe the time zone deal. Well, and, and on that, Jim, Moray, I don't know if you've had experience uh, interviewing Tiger Woods or reporting on him, but I mean, my gosh, could it get any worse for this guy? Talk about a fall from grace. When he had that incident with the his so-called mistresses, I, I interviewed several of them, and you know, it, it, look, it, it, I, we have to cover these stories, and and they're obviously huge stories. It doesn't mean you enjoy covering them. You don't want to see the fall of an American icon like that. And you know, he was he was well regarded. He had an amazing career. He was legendary. You don't want to see that kind of fall. And and you, you know, I'd hoped that he was somewhat regaining control of his life even though his career hasn't really come back but this is it's it's very sad it really is you, you wonder why the cops wouldn't cut the guy a break because you have the notion that somebody as famous as tiger woods a local cop might be such a fan that even though he shouldn't obviously he shouldn't let some drunk driver you know keep going doing but in a way to me it's surprising that they wouldn't just kind of cut him some slack you, you know jim this brings up something and i was joking about it during the sports that he should have used a driver and <laughs> yes, <I heard> that. <laughs> well again it's really no joke that people of means obviously have the opportunity and should take advantage of that money that they have and get a car, hire a chauffeur, take a taxi, take an Uber, something. Why in the heck are you driving if there's any doubt that you might be over the limit? And you know, this, this generation is so in tune to that fact. I mean, I, I was at a wedding last night and my, my daughter and her boyfriend both left their cars at our house because it was a family, family friend. Sure. Because they Ubered home. Mm -hmm. Because we knew... We knew that we'd be drinking. You just, you just yep. Uber or, or Lyft or get a ride from somebody. But, yes, you're right. And somebody with that kind of money, it, it doesn't matter how much you have. But, frankly, somebody who's in the public eye, who has that responsibility, uh, because you know it's going to be covered. And it's going to be covered like crazy. And it's going to affect every single one of his endorsements and his reputation mm -hmm. all over again. And it's going to bring up all these stories that we're talking about now. Yeah, you're right. You, but, but it was a very good joke that you had. You should have used a driver. Like <laughs> we're talking with Jim Murray, Inside Edition Chief Correspondent. And, hey, Jim, somebody told me you've, you've written a book. It's called Last Day of My Life. Uh, I'm <laughs> thinking, I'm thinking like since this is a Memorial Day, you might, if you're looking for a late Memorial Day gift, you could go to Amazon.com. Last Day of My Life by Jim Murray. Probably, I, I've heard that they've got drones now that drop, they could drop last day of my life in your front yard. Right, right I off of the drone. I personally deliver the uh, four copies I'll sell to your house and I'll sign them for so, you. So, Jim, big movie news. Uh, apparently, Pirates of the Caribbean are not doing so well and, and Baywatch. I mean, I, I thought uh, Dwayne Johnson was like the biggest thing on the planet. How could, how could this not be a huge hit? Well, it got... 18% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not a good sign. You know, these movies are supposed to be fun. Uh, the, the Baywatch was, it, I think what it is, is not what it was. So they, they made it into kind of a buddy cop 
beach movie that it really, you know, it, it just, it's not, they didn't really know what they were doing. Frankly, Dwayne Johnson is so easy to like, and people love him, and understandably. And you'd think that he would have the pull to open a film, uh, and he probably would if the film had been better reviewed. That, that movie, fortunately, it didn't cost a lot. It was about $68 million, but it's only brought in, I think, $23 million over the five days. And, and you talk about pirates. Pirates cost... I don't know, two hundred and thirty million. However, however, and and it's the lowest performance of any uh, of any of the pirate movies since the first. But overseas, it's still huge. So that movie is probably going to be in the two hundred and fifty million dollar range worldwide by the end of this weekend. So that movie is is expected to get its money back. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I think of Dwayne Johnson and what a draw he is, and how he, as you mentioned, Jim, he's so easily likable that he de you know he deserves a mulligan, and this. I would think this will not hurt his career. I don't think it will. He, he, you know what? I've interviewed him several times. He is so gracious. And, and a lot of stars, the stuff goes to their heads. And not with him. He, he seems to be very mindful of the fact that, yeah, he's talented and likable, but he's also fortunate. And he's, he's, he's a, just a decent guy. You want him to succeed. And, but I, I think the first problem with Baywatch, to me, was it was getting so much exposure in ads that you think, what's wrong with this movie? Why does it need this much support in advertising? If it's a good movie, it'll, it'll catch on via word of mouth, you know? But he was on SNL. I was at the airport traveling, and, and I saw there was a Baywatch logo on, on a moving screen at the airport. You know, he was, uh, Dwayne Johnson was holding up, welcome to JFK, <laughs> only kidding, LAX, go see Baywatch. And I'm thinking, how many ads could you have? Yeah. And, and that, that was a sign of trouble to me. Yeah, well, he's huge. So we're talking with Jim Murray, Inside Edition Chief Correspondent. Jim, what about this poor uh, Sean Spicer? Now, he, he's a guy who needs a mulligan. Um, apparently, you know, they're talking about demoting him. And, and he's a big Catholic. Uh, and he was left out of the meeting, the audience with the Pope. Uh, and is the suspicion that Trump was just kind of bashing him because he's not really happy with his performance? You know, I, I was so furious personally and and i've been screaming at the tv like everybody has when sean spicer comes on and says things that you think that's not true why is he saying that why is he standing up for this guy however you, you know what donald trump demands loyalty and apparently offers none in return because sean spicer has stood out there and and you know you might as well have tomatoes throwing them at sean spicer yeah. in the press room but it, it, this would have made his life. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know if you recall April Ryan, the, the reporter, the African-American reporter who really w went head-to-head -head with Spicer in, in the briefing room. Even she came out today and said, you know what? Yeah, I've had my problems with this guy. Yes, I'm critical of him, but that was wrong. My, my wife said to me, gosh, Donald Trump must not care about Sean Spicer. And I said, no, he has to care a lot to exclude him and invite junior yeah, staff Yeah, less senior staff members. And apparently there were Rosicrucians, the Christian scientists, Rastafarians, all of these people <laughs> who were not big Catholics. So it's. I just, uh, my heart breaks for that guy because I, I suspect he's going to be demoted. I, I I said to a friend, I said, you know, he really should resign just to, just to regain some of the credibility and reputation he's lost in this role. On the other but hand, Jim, I have to say, the suits that he was wearing, now you, of course, are impeccably dressed. You could, the, the, his suit was so big, you could stuff a chubby Wolverine between his shirt collar and his coat collar, and he didn't fix it. Now, that I don't know if we can forgive. I, I You know... 
you, every time this man walks down the street, people will shout Melissa McCarthy's name. <laughs> you know, it's you gotta you gotta cut him a break because where's he gonna go next? Where, I was thinking about that. What do you do next if you're Sean Spicer? What about the thirty five pieces of gum a day he chews and swallows? That can't be good for your intestines. <laughs> I don't even know that was possible to survive that time. I, when I was a kid, I was told by my mom, never swallow that gum. It'll stay there forever. And I'm thinking, he must be elastic from the waist down. Exactly. Well, Jim Murray, Inside Edition Chief Correspondent, thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. Uh, and, hey, thank you. you, you, you I, I learned about Tiger Woods from you guys. So I, I really appreciate that. Rob, thanks so much. Breaking and, news. Uh, nice newsman, Rob Marinko. Well, we don't put her around here. <laughs> See you later, Jim. <laughs> Take care. Have a great holiday. Bye-bye. Very polite, Jim Murray. 846 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KABC, Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre and in for himself, Bill Thomas. How are things looking? Time, Duck Radio's 790 KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Close your robe, cuz. Come on. See, I mean, but just think about that. That song is it, just stuck in our heads. It's so iconic. How does a guy like that lose uh, in a in a try? Mm -hmm. So, folks, uh, what's happening is June 5 for the balloon lifts, the Bill Cosby uh, sexual assault trial in Philadelphia. And... I don't know. I mean, we're, we're going to talk in a second about some of the, the baggage that this the prosecution witness, the chief accuser, has. But I mean, if, even if she didn't have a, a bunch of things to to explain, it's got to be tough when he's, you know, his lawyers say he's practically blind. He's kind of walking in barely with a cane. Everybody remembers him as America's dad. You are not going to hear from the 53 women who make the accusation of sexual assault because uh, the prosecution only wanted to have 12 of them testify. And the judge said, no, I'm going to give you one of the 12 in addition to the primary accuser, Andrea Constanza. You're going to hear two from two women. Uh, with all of that lineup, uh, I don't know. I, I guess it's possible that people's attitude is where there's so much smoke, there's got to be some fire beneath. But I, I don't think I'd run out and bet any money on uh, on him losing. This no, trial. I think prosecutors have a real tough, tough case here, especially if you consider Constance history. She and her mom going to show after yeah. she said that she was... You know, uh, sexually uh, yeah, exactly harassed. right. The, the, and let's get into some of the details on that. So Andrea Constan's story is that she was sexually assaulted at Bill Cosby's house in 2004. Uh, the background of that is that she had repeatedly gone to dinner with him, including twice at his home before this assault. And on both of those occasions before this particular March 2004 night, she said that he was all over her. He was groping her. He tried to take her pants off mm -hmm. and she fended him off. She said, no, no, no. And yet she goes back to his house. Okay, so now she goes to his house this night in March 2004. And what she says is that she had told him she's very tense about career issues and she she's all stressed out. Yeah. And so he says, hey, I've got something for you. He goes upstairs and he returns with three blue pills. And she claims that he said, well, this is an herbal remedy for stress. That was kind. Yeah, he later tells the cops it's Benadryl. So she takes the pills and she says her vision goes blurry and she can't talk. He helps her to the sofa where she says he then sexually assaulted her. She 
She says, I was unable to move my body. I was pretty much frozen. Okay, so that's March 2004. She doesn't tell anybody. She doesn't tell her parents or the cops or a lawyer or anything. Five months later, in August 2004, she's still not going to the cops. Instead, as you were suggesting, Rob, she and her parents decide they're going to drive all the way up to Toronto to see Cosby perform. They have a gift for him. They want to see him before the performance. It's a little T-shirt gift. And they leave the gift behind because they can't actually see him before the performance. They miss each other. So the defense is going to be able to present this evidence and say, hey, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did this really happen the way she claims? Would a person who had been sexually assaulted, drugged in March 2004... Say to her parents, hey, let's go over to see the cause, you know, up in Toronto and bring him a gift and so on. Yeah, before that performance, the other previous performance you saw was uh, that of uh, Fat Albert. I'm telling you, it's going to be hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as I say, that's why I'm not really betting. Don't shake your head in there, okay? I'm working here, all right? (laughs) (laughs) It is 8.54 on Doug Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Stay with us. Six the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday weekend. And we make it easy to hear all our news and podcasts on your smartphone and iPads. Download the 790 KABC app from iTunes and Google Play and from KABC.com. And take KABC wherever you go. Download the KABC app and listen longer from News Talk Evolve 790 KABC. So if it's Memorial Day weekend, it's time to go to Disneyland. And uh, we got uh, some inside stories here from Joseph Pimentel. He is a tourism reporter for the Orange County Register. Joseph, happy Memorial Day. Thanks for spending part of your holiday with us. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, same to you. And um, definitely a shout out to all all of our veterans here in in the U.S. Absolutely. You know, um, mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, Disneyland and the new attractions and so on. Apparently, uh, part mm-hmm. of California Adventure, uh, there's a new Guardians of the Galaxy attraction. And it's kind of a big deal because, I mean, unless I'm wrong, I- I'm no expert on it, but I think it's the beginning maybe of superhero rides at Disneyland because haven't they kind of resisted this until now? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, replacing the old Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Um, you know, frankly, you know, Disney has been sitting on this Marvel franchise brand, you know, since 2009. They spent $4 billion on. And everybody has always sort of just wondered, well, when are they going to start introducing these Marvel superhero-themed attractions into their theme parks? And it wasn't until last year when they put the, they put the Iron Man experience which is similar to Star Tours in Hong Kong Disneyland, that they really just started revving up. And now with this whole Guardians of the Galaxy um, a franchise here at Disney California Adventure, you know, the Disneyland president and uh, Bob Iger and Bob Chapek and all those head guys there said, you know, this is going to anchor the superhero, the, the start of the Marvel uh, expansion into uh, Disney California Adventure. Well, it's going to make it different. I remember when I used to go to Disneyland as a kid, I basically I would go see uh, Mr. Lincoln. You know, they had the robot. Uh, and then I'd <laughs> yeah, go yeah. to the teacups. 
then I'd go back to see Mr. Lincoln again, and then back to the teacups. And, and that was pretty, pretty much Don't it. the submarines. Well, no, 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 I was just the two. No, okay. no, let's, Rob Marenko, I'm going to guess. For you, it was Sleeping Beauty's Castle, or uh, is that pretty much very funny. what attracted you? Yes. Uh, Joseph, i got a question for you. Now, you've got this new ride at uh, California Adventure. But back east, also in Orange County, in Orlando, a couple of rides opened up in the last several days, attractions. And I'm curious, what what goes on to make uh, parks open these rides at a particular time? I remember also in the past where more than one attraction is open around the same time as your competition. Is that planned? Yeah, well, you know, I think here on the West Coast, and, and uh, just to give um, your listeners uh, an overview, they also opened Pandora, this Avatar-themed land uh-huh. um, uh, at Walt Disney World. Um, but here, uh, there is some concern, because Star Wars is already in construction, um, and, uh, and that's going to be in Disneyland. And Disneyland is so popular Right. I mean, they had like 18 million people come in just a couple of years ago that there, you know, Disney California, they're the sister park, the adjacent uh, Disney California Adventure. It's, you know, it's not getting any love. So that's why they, they really fast tracked this this ride, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. I mean, it only took a year. Most rides take an average two, three years. In the case of Pandora, for example, which you're referring to, I mean, it took, what, six, seven years to develop that land. Um, so I, I think right now Disney just really w- wants to prepare for that onslaught that they're going to face in a couple of years. So they need to start incorporating all these Marvel attractions to sort of even out the flow of the crowds um, going to the park. We're talking with Joseph Pimentel, tourism reporter for the Orange County Register. Rob, I assume that, you know, it's kind of like getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You, you, they usually time it to coincide with a big movie opening. I mean, Joseph, you think that's, that's really what's behind uh, some of these uh, openings of the big rides? They, they just want to get the, the biggest bang for their buck in terms of the impact on the public? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's always the Disney's M.O. I mean, since the, the since the very beginning, um, I mean, they have this, this perfect synergy. They produce the movie. They sell the merchandise around it. And if you want to meet the characters, they place it into the parks. Right. They did that with Frozen. When Frozen came out and became a big hit, they started selling all the merchandise. And guess what? Hey, if you want to meet Anna and Elsa, well, it costs you about 100 bucks to go to Disneyland. You can meet with them. Um, so, I mean, this is something that Disney has always done uh, since the very opening of the park. So, uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, with the whole new Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 coming out and now the new ride. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is perfect, perfect time for, for Disney to capitalize on Marvel and, and, and all their uh, other properties. So in your article, you said riding this new Guardians of the Galaxy attraction is like hopping on an out-of-control pogo stick, <laughs> drops on the elevator, free fall, ride, or wild and unexpected zipping guests on a variety of heights, both up and down. Now, have you actually been on the ride? Oh, yes. Uh, I was on there uh, twice. Um, I went back-to-back, and the second time I felt pretty queasy. I almost uh, nearly threw up. Um, it's, it's, it's not well, like an endorsement. <laughs> it's not, well, you know, that's I, worth a hundred bucks right there. This is not the, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who felt this way because, um, it's so different. Um, you know, with the twilight zone tower of terror, there was this, you know, lead up, there's this, uh, sort of this anticipation, uh, you go on, it's an elevator free fall, right? So you go up and then, you know, the lightning strikes and then, 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 then comes the drop. But here, the drops come so suddenly, so frequently, and just like what I mentioned, it's so frenetic. 
and it just sort of bounces you up and down, up and down, and then it takes you all the way up and then has that big drop. And mind you, I rode back to back, you know, just to get the experience and just because there's six different adventures, six different, uh, you know, music uh, attached to each ride. So I wanted to try it for myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the second time, definitely, it was a good thing I didn't eat breakfast because uh, I would have left it out. <laughs> so, so Disney really opened up their checkbook. I mean, uh, apparently it was 2008. They paid, they paid $4 billion bucks to buy the whole Correct. Marvel comic book and entertainment brand. And then the Star Wars deal, I mean, they cut this deal with George Lucas. I don't remember the amount, but I, I know it was billions. It, 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 it was $4 billion too. Also, okay, so they're on this amazing run. I, and as I remember hearing the story, Lucas actually had a, a connection with some Disney folks, so maybe there wasn't a big uh, bidding war with Warner Brothers and so on. But, I mean, between Marvel and Star Wars, Star Wars this is like a, a one-two profit punch that could stretch out for decades to come for Disney. It seems like a brilliant deal. Oh, yeah, definitely. And they've already made their money. Uh, you know, all those movies that they've uh, produced with Star Wars, and you see all the new Star Wars movies coming out for the next five, six years, and all the Marvel stuff. I mean, they've made their money, even just on merchandise alone. Um, I mean, it was definitely a steal. And now this is just, uh, you know, icing on the cake, you know, just having uh, th these new properties charging, you know, $100 for admittance, um, you know, and adding all these new uh, Marvel and Star Wars attractions. Well, you know, the prices have just kind of gone nuts. I was reading that uh, the New York Yankees are actually suffering this year because even though they've got a, a terrific team, but they don't have giant stars like Derek Jeter and so on. But a lot of the seats at Yankee Stadium are empty and the, and the corporate suites are empty because they had raised the prices to like $2,500 a seat. Can you imagine? I mean, if you're Jack Nicholson, perhaps Showtime, front row, uh, watching Magic Johnson, he'll pay $2,500. What human being would pay that kind of money? Uh, uh, but I guess for Disneyland, people complain about, you know, 90 or 100 or whatever it is. But, it, I mean, that's that's the direction we're headed. People don't seem to really balk at, at prices like that. No, and, and Disney's argument for that is that, hey, look, you go to a Yankee game, it lasts, what, maybe two, maybe four hours the most if it goes into extra innings. Guess what? Here at Disneyland, we're charging the same price, $100 or whatnot, but it's open for, you know, 16 hours or so, you know, from 8 a.m. to midnight. Plus, you get the fireworks, you get the parade, you get all this, you know, all, you get all these access to these rides, uh, yada, yada, yada. So that's their argument. I think, um, I think that's a good race slogan for Disney. Here at Disneyland, it's extra innings every day. <laughs> I'm going to write that <laughs> yeah, right now. Uh, we'll just run sure. up the flagpole. Hey, Joseph Pimentel, yeah. tourism reporter for the Orange County Register. Thank you so much for joining us on this Memorial Day. You have a great holiday. You too. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. The time is 916 on Talk Radio 790 KABC. We're going to get shift gears because there was a pretty interesting uh, news story uh, uh, about uh, great white sharks that you folks uh, may have uh, seen uh, recently. And uh, we are delighted to be joined by uh, Chris Pika. He is a boat captain who is right in the middle of the news story. Chris, happy Memorial Day to you. Happy Memorial Day, gentlemen. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, give us a little bit about the background. As I understand it, uh, everybody's been talking about shark sightings uh, lately. We've had San Clemente beaches closed due to uh, shark sightings, and uh, you, uh, you, and uh, uh, some of your colleagues are, are actually part of what's called a whale disentanglement team. So, tell us about that, and tell us how you uh, got wrapped up in this news story about the shark. 
Okay, guys. Well, the whale disentanglement team—that's uh, part of NOAA. We've all been trained, uh, you know, uh, in uh, to disentangle whales. You know, a lot of the whales come through, and they have uh, like crab uh, gear wrapped on them, and you know, different types of fishing gear, netting, and stuff like that. And when you say yeah, NOAA, you're talking National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. So uh, we're all trained in there, and we have a, a task force that actually goes out and. Uh, you know, we, we do what we can do and the amount of time that we have to work with it, you know, and, and we also uh, spread out information and, uh, to other teams up the coastline and down the coastline. So, uh, you know, we, we have been through a lot of different uh, trainings and, uh, you know, as well as a lot of different uh, rescues, rescue attempts. And anyway, uh, what happens was, uh, what happened was, I was, uh, I was actually off work. I, was, I just got off work, and uh, we were going out in a skiff because I heard of all these great white sharks, and I was up at the shipyard for about, eh, what, like 20 days. So I'm hearing all these stories about all these great whites, and I grew up in San Clemente, and I've never seen anything like this. I grew up surfing and fishing off the coast here in San Clemente, and never, you know, I mean, the 70s, 80s, 90s, nothing like this. So I had to go out and see it for myself. <laughs> so according well, to the story, is I here you're, you're in a like a lobster skiff. You're out in like eight feet of water, and all of a sudden, ten great white sharks start gliding around you. Within about twenty minutes, we saw ten different great white sharks. It was absolutely amazing. It's something that I, you know, I couldn't believe unless I saw it myself. That's uh, that's you know because like I was telling you, I grew up here and never seen anything like this. Mm -hmm. In fact. Uh, I got a report yesterday uh, from a from a guy in a helicopter where he said he saw two dozen great white sharks from wow. uh, San Clemente Pier all the way up to Dana Pointer. All right, so you you and your now you're out there with some friends uh, to uh, to just see what you can see, and you're surrounded by these great. Uh, were you were you frightened? Did you think you were in any danger because of the the great white uh, sharks that were uh, roaming around you? No, I wasn't frightened at all. We were just excited because it's you know they are such a you know a, an amazing creature. I mean these things are very graceful. They're you know they're very they, the way they move through the water. It's uh, really graceful and they're very extremely powerful too. It's and I understand they never go to sleep. No, they don't. No, they don't. There's a theory on how whales and sharks and stuff sleep, and that's they put one side of the brain to sleep. And then they'll use the other side that's awake to perform the bodily functions. So then once that gets a certain amount, once, I, once the uh, side of the brain that was asleep wakes up, then the uh, other side that was awake performing the bodily functions, uh, that'll, that'll go to sleep. Rob Marenko, do you think that's a technique the radio station employees here might, might want to consider? Hey, Chris, leave it to me to drop the turd in the touch, uh, punch bowl here. But uh, I just went out to dinner the other night, and... Um, we had shark for dinner. I had a shark for dinner. And was there any point where you wanted to grab the shark and just bring it on board and grill it up? Well, considering the shark was just about to almost um, a little bit. Uh, oh, excuse me, guys. I got my radio on. I'm up in the wheelhouse here. <laughs> okay. That added a touch of realism to yeah, the interview. It really does. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, actually, Feel free to let Rob have it over trying to eat sharks. I mean, you know, you might as well. That's an endangered well, species. No, no, it's oh, not. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure they the, are. Uh, the gray white shark is a protected species, oh. not an endangered species. It's protected. The reason why the fishing game, I was talking, this was uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. 
I was talking to the head marine biologist in the uh, Department of Fish and Game at the time. Now it's called the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, he was telling me that uh, they put great white sharks because uh, they are a natural predator sea lions. And the sea lions were overpopulated just in the state of California by, I believe it was about 400,000. So once you do have that many sea lions that, you know, or that uh, one species that is overpopulated, uh, especially a species that's about 700 pounds, the males get to be about 700 pounds, uh, females about half that size. Uh, when you have an overabundance or, you know, overpopulation of a species like that, that is a predator, they don't call them lions for nothing, they can eat uh, one-third of their body weight in a day. So it was putting a hernia on a lot of the fishery <laughs> that we have out here, too. That's, so that's they, nothing. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The fishing game, they, they put those on the protected species list. And they, uh, you know, they made quite a tremendous comeback, as you guys could see. So <laughs> they are the natural predator to the sea lions. All right. Well, Chris Pika, boat captain extraordinaire, thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'm going to hit the interweb and find out who's right and who's wrong about this endangered species controversy. 922 The Time, Royal Oaks in for Dr. McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the roads?